what's up guys if you're into sports movies or tv go check out my other podcast called empty out the clip out now on spotify and everywhere else you get your podcast empty out the clip is a podcast about me talking to uh different guests about the latest in sports uh might be about the rugby the super rugby might be about monosamo might be about the all blacks or some nrl even some nba so random sporting topics each episode i'll be talking to guests about latest movies tv series on netflix streaming services and so on so yeah all on empty out the clip go check that out part of the west west network brought to you by westwestnet.com also go check out all our social media pages the west west network on instagram twitter facebook youtube so give us a like and follow all right so welcome to another episode of the back of the 135 podcast episode number 114 yes we're getting up there Our guest today is the CEO of Kanaloa Rugby, Tracy Artinga. So if you haven't heard, Kanaloa Rugby, the 100% Pacific Island owned and operated rugby franchise that pulled out of the MLR, which is the USA rugby competition, and put in a bid for the Super Rugby competition, which New Zealand Rugby rejected. And in its place emerged a second Pacific Island rugby franchise called Moana Pacifica. So it was cool to have Tracy in the studio to, to talk about all this, the background of it all, and the background of her, her business. So we talk about New Zealand rugby in general. Uh, we talk about her stint working for Basketball New Zealand or Auckland Basketball. Hope you guys enjoyed this one because, man, that was really insightful and I, for one, really enjoyed it. So, yep, we give it up for Tracy Atzinger. Thank you for having me. You know, we're, I've still got the um, the Maya Fem thing in my head. We were talking about earlier. So, it so. was a masterpiece, mate. It was a masterpiece. So how long were you on, on there for? Oh, a uh, couple of years I did that gig. Um, it was my favourite job because I got 100 bucks uh, per segment oh. <laughs> free as a freelance. Um, freelance, I can't remember what it's called now, but... I was a freelancer, yeah. Mm. So two de- two years I did it, and in our second year we won the Radio New Zealand Award. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you had to go in the street and just talk to random people. Yeah. So we'd pick about a, whatever the topic was. Yeah, pick a topic. So um, it'd be a youth issue because it was um, Te Putake, so the voice of Rangatahi, um, and so you'd kind of pick a health issue or a mm. uh, pretty confronting question like, you know, is it all right to have um, sex when you're 16? Mm. <laughs> you know, things like that. And so we'd just um, collate the answers and then uh, go back into the studio at MyFem and then um, mash it all up and create a 30-minute show. Oh. Yeah. And how old were you? <laughs> I, was, I was 15 when I started and I was 16 when I finished. So you've been used to the, the media stuff? 
Yeah, like I, I ended up on, on Max TV, eh? So um, it wasn't just radio, it was also TV, and I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Felt comfortable in front of the TV, and I loved communicating, so. So at that time, obviously you were playing, you were playing rugby at school, and so I was, was playing for school and for club. Uh, Ponsonby Rugby Club. Okay. Yeah. So I actually started at PK or Ponsonby Calston when I was six. Uh, played with the boys, and then I got to intermediate, and that's when uh, they told me I couldn't play with the boys anymore. <laughs> I, I actually genuinely couldn't understand why. Didn't it didn't really correspond with me as to why girls couldn't play with boys. But um, I said okay, cool, and then um, I ended up finishing when I was eleven, and then I went back to rugby when I was uh, fourteen. So you come from a, a rugby family, so your older brothers, they play, mm-hmm. um, they played reps. Yeah. So you just joined and them. And my sister, and my mum, oh. and my dad, we yeah. all played. Yeah, I actually played with my mum and my aunties and my sister, all all in the same team. Yeah. Uh, and when I was younger, I played with my brothers, so yeah. yeah. Real family affair. It's cool, those kind of things, because it's like, sort of comes natural, yeah. becomes normal mm-hmm. for, for your family and for you. And like, did you ever think, like, when you were young, like what you'll become in the future like would you continue it on and because you know what who you are now is probably you'd probably didn't think where you're gonna you're gonna be now when you're that age 15 right well i mean okay i'll be i'll be honest yeah. I, I knew from probably oh. age 11 yeah. what i was going to end up doing because my dad and my mum um who were my you know role models in life uh, they were heavily involved in in sports administration so they ran our athletics club they ran the netball club they ran the rugby club um, they did all the fundraisers <laughs> and we had to sell raffles. Yeah. So, you know, and, and you know, I worked in the tuck shops and I worked behind the bar. So you just grew up knowing how to do it all. Um, so I kind of knew from a really early, early age, like I think I did my first sponsorship proposal to McDonald's when I was 11 years old. Uh, handwritten application with a, a quote for uniforms that I'd got from a supplier. So I knew really early on what I was going to do. What, you mean like sponsorship like for your team? Yeah, yeah. So we got a fully funded um, basketball kit, shorts and singlets, and they also threw in Happy Meal vouchers for Play of the Day each week. So, so how did you come up with that? Because that, <laughs> that leads to, that's sort of like the beginnings of what you are now. You're a CEO of a, mm. shall we say, a million dollar company. Or we are responsible for millions of dollars right now. Yeah, yeah. You know? And just trying to get back to when, you know, like, this sort of business mind you had, where did it start? Like, um, I think I was just always an ambitious kid who um, didn't believe that there were limitations in life, and I'm, I'm still that person. Even now, if you ask my closest family and friends, they'll tell you that I'm a child uh, with, you know, with no boundaries, no rules, no regulations. So um, I still apply that in my, in my career right now, the same attitude I had when I was young. But, yeah, I, I knew the seed was planted a long time ago, mm-hmm. and I think I got that from my mum and dad because... Um, you know, we, we came from very um, humble beginnings uh, and nothing was ever impossible. You know, if, if we wanted to play in uh, a rugby team that was touring, they made it possible, you know, mm-hmm. even though we probably couldn't afford it at the time. Yeah. There was never an excuse. You just got to work hard and, and go out there and find the money. So, yeah, I guess that set us up for, for now where I am now. Mm-hmm. So did, did you know or, or did someone see in you, like, what you what they could turn out to be? You know what I mean? Like... It's not just playing rugby anymore, it's like more than that. Yeah. But using the game to help you develop these other skills. Yeah, I know exactly what. So I did. I had a lot of people that believed in me. Yeah. Um, I think my number one influences in my life outside of my parents and my siblings uh, were probably the coaches that I had in my life. Okay. I had a whole lot of coaches, uh, rugby, basketball, netball. Um, and they'll all tell you that I was a really trying 
young person, you know, especially in my adolescence. I was always, you know, getting in trouble and pushing boundaries. And I, I know that for a fact. Um, and I also had a youth aid officer by the time I was 14 because I got into a bit of trouble. So the youth aid officer who would usually, um, you know, put you into a system mm-hmm. and then you're stuck there for life actually tried a different approach with me and, and put me into community activities and had me reffing, you know, reffing touch tournaments and um, coordinating sports days on my weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved it. And so, you know, I've had a lot of people who saw the potential in me, probably recognised that I wasn't a troublemaker, I was just burning energy and I just needed things to do. Yeah. yeah. And music as well. I also had a, okay. had a, a violin teacher who took a lot of time out of his day to teach yeah. me how to just be calm and, you know... And, and, and focus on other things other than, you know, what everyone else was doing, which is probably just boring me a bit. What was everybody doing around you? <sighs> yeah, well, I mean, I know at 11 years old, no one else was doing a sponsorship proposal yeah, for yeah, basketball yeah. uniforms. I know that. Um, even now, right, I'm 38. Um, I don't know many other 38-year-olds who are CEOs of companies. Cause, oh, thank you, by the way, for coming on our rugby podcast, The Counter, because that's when you said 38 years old, you're a CEO of a company, and and to me, I, I thought, okay, fuck, who else out there is? I don't think there's many. I actually Googled it, and there was a top 10 um, under 40 women. But then I thought, okay, how many Pacifica women? Mm. And I don't think there's many. No. no. No, and to be fair, I've been a CEO for over a decade, so I was actually 28 when I first became a CEO of a company. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that was unheard of, and... I know everybody at the time was looking at me like, you're crazy, you can't run a company, you can't run this, you can't do that. And I was like, oh, why not? Mm. Just because no one else is doing it. Um, and now it's the norm. You know, like I was, we were having a quick chat about, you know, the fact that I love wearing just what I wear because yeah. it's not, you know, what you wear, it's what you do. Um, a lot of people still get stuck in that mode of, you know, you're this, so you have to dress a certain way or you have to act a certain way. And I look at, um, you know, some of the coolest CEOs in the world um, you know, Google, Facebook, you name it, Insta, and, you know, they're completely 100% themselves and they don't really give a damn about what the norm is or what society says you have to look like or be. Um, and if you look at the average age of all of the, you know, multinational companies who are making billions of dollars, you know, you're looking at sort of 20 to 30-year-olds, not, not you know, 60 to 7-year-olds. So, yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I actually attended a, um, uh, an end-of-year celebration for um, Colville School, Colville School up in Henderson. Um, and I explained to the kids then that when I was about that age, 10, 11, I used to circle CEO and general manager roles in the newspaper because in my head that's what I thought was possible. And I know everyone else was circling the newspaper delivery little um, you know, <laughs> jobs. <laughs> you know. And it took me heaps, heaps of jobs to get there. I mean, I did hospital for ages and... Um, you know, bits of admin and stuff like that, and um, teacher aiding. I worked with autistic kids, lots of community volunteer hours. Um, but, you know, you gather enough skills and you realise where your worth is and eventually you get to be a CEO. So, you know, all these other jobs, were you doing, the, like, the teacher aid work and all that? Was that always with um, being a CEO in mind? Were you just trying to get little aspects of this job or learning different skills in that, or...? Okay, so I always wanted to work for Auckland Rugby. Yeah. Like I just, I don't know, always wanted to. Um, and I did a bit of research and I realised that um, everyone at Auckland Rugby were either teachers or principals, um, right up to the GM. So I was like, okay, if I've got to get a job there, then I have to go into um, 
education. So I actually went to university and did a Bachelor of PE to start with. And <laughs> two years in, I did my first practicum at, um, at, a, at a high school and I realised I was never going to be able to be a PE teacher. <laughs> you know, it's funny because we were, we, I don't know if you've heard um, our mate Yash, so he's got a, um, a podcast as well about, he's a bit of a, he's a personal trainer, he's a CrossFit guy in it. So he asked us this question and I was exactly like you. So I went to teacher's training college and I went for a year and a half and I was telling him like the first practicum or the, you know, the first placement, I thought, man, this is it. And then the second and third one, they were so bad and I was just, and I thought, nah, I can't do this because I might go down and I'm, I'm going to get arrested or something. That's right. And that was part of it because yeah. they, there was different, they had different ways of teaching the kids, disciplining them and I thought, you can't do it. You know, yeah. this guy's, one of it is because my teacher the student, he just went off and he was like swearing at her and he made her, he, like, so he lunged for her. So I grabbed him, you know, typical guy, you know, and he moved him around and one of the teachers came to me, you can't touch him. I said, well, if I'd, if I'd left him, he would've, she would have got beaten up. She doesn't, you know, you need to sit him down and, and I went, that was kind of the first bit and then it kind of snowballed from there and I was like, no, I, maybe there's something else out there for me. So I'm exactly like, you know, you, I, I, I know exactly what it's like to go to a practicum and go, no, yeah. there's something else out there. Yeah. yeah. I was like, if I have to do another practicum just to go work for Auckland Rugby, it's not going to work. So <laughs> what I ended up doing was starting a company instead. And that's that was the birth of NSG, New Sports Generation Limited, which was basically how we started doing rugby clinics and things like that. Yeah. So that's actually how it started. That's why I went down that path. And um, so instead of going down the education, become a teacher, get into a role at Auckland Rugby, what I ended up doing was starting a, essentially, I guess, a competitive organisation mm. and teaching myself. Yeah. You know, when people start businesses, they either try and be better than the next person. With, with, with that company that you started, with the rugby clinics, what was the landscape in New Zealand at that time? We was this like an opportunity for you to do something different than no one else is doing? Yeah. Or were there other places doing it, not doing it right? Or what, in your eyes, like, I can do something, we can do something that's better than what's here now? Yeah, so we started holiday programs um, with sports-specific trades. So um, we came up with all the ideas. And the reason why we did it was because parents were paying um, to go for kids to go to like a music holiday program or a science holiday, so very specifically a subject. Um, and we thought, well, rugby had just become professional, really. Or like if professionalism is now a future career prospect, then parents are going to click on to start teaching their kids how to be better athletes <laughs> so they can go and, you know, get contracted um, and, and find careers in sports. So I'll never forget the first time me and my husband started our first clinic. It was really small. Um, and, you know, we had a, a, a whole lot of um, scholarship-based participants, so we put out um, free participation scholarships to all the clubs out South Auckland, and then we shipped them into town to hang out with us. Um, my parents and my husband's parents um, really just kind of laughed at us and kind of went, oh, you know, who's going to pay you to <laughs> teach their kids how to play rugby? You know, because, I mean, to be fair, it was completely innovative, so no one was doing it, and made no sense, you know. It, all you're doing is babysitting a whole bunch of kids for three days and teaching them how to play rugby. Um, turned out we were full. From that point on, we had sell-out holiday programs and we ended up getting Oscar grants and, you know, win subsidies, so it was a full-on, fully-fledged company running programs. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so then uh, if you if you look back then, you'll answer, you'll answer your question, there were no programs doing or no companies doing what we were doing. Um, fast forward now, and there's over 26 companies in that market, saturated. Mm. Yeah, 26 separate companies. So on top of the 26 companies, you've, each of them are doing like multiple programs, you know, but we're 10, 10 15 years ahead of everyone else. Mm. Yeah. So we're tapping into social development funds, for example, when, when, when no one else actually knows that that fund's available because we've been doing it for so long. Did you ever, where did you get the model from? You know, like, you know, like the toys. So it's just all up here or is it just you guys it, having a look? Yeah, like a lot how? of it's up here because it's all new. It's like, it, like, like Kanaloa. It's, uh, no, one, no one had done it before, so you kind of have to dream it up. Um, I am, uh, I'm, I'm proud to say now I'm a matakite, so I'm a seer. So I do have visions, and sometimes my visions come during the day, sometimes they're during my dreams. Um, and sometimes someone can just talk to me, and all of a sudden I get this, this like light bulb moment, and I just draw it down. Um, so what I've learned over the years is to act on, act on those things, because usually they're so innovative that they'll become very popular in the future. Yeah, so I just act on them now. <laughs> but that's where it comes from, from, from the head. Um, sometimes my husband's also a visionary. Um, so he comes up with things a lot, lots of really cool ideas, uh, and we just mash it out on a piece of paper. Yeah, I think what's cool about you, um, Tracy, and your husband, like you guys come from from rugby, and you guys transcended just the game and to carry on and do something, create a business out of it. Yeah, you know, and that's man, that's cool, man. That's like that's a that's a pathway. Thank you. That's a pathway for like a career pathway, not just playing the sport, but Using the sport to help help other people, help yeah, communities. That's the one. And yeah, no, are you, that's just awesome. Are, are you annoyed that twenty five other companies followed your? Because <laughs> pretty much they they saw how you've done it and they thought you know what? Because that's you know that's opportunist. I mean that is business. You know you see an opportunity, yeah. you take it. But you know like you said, you were 10, 10, 15 years before the eight of the game, and then all of these people they think okay, and then they, they must realize how hard it is because. Or they've just followed your game plan, which must be hard, though, you know? Um, I, there were a couple of companies at the beginning who actually asked to meet with us and learn the ropes. And I was like, yeah, great, you know, this is awesome. Um, but then those same groups actually went and, like, started maliciously attacking our company and talking about how we're this and we're that, just oh, so wow. that they could get ahead in the market. So um, that's when it hurts me. Um, I'm more than happy for companies to copy because I think it's important especially if they're Māori Pacifica groups, that if we can do it, you can do it too. Yeah. Um, but when a group then turns their back on you or, or starts spreading rumours about you just so that they can get ahead, that's when I feel like, mm, that's a real shame. But it happens. That's, that's what money does. Um, and because we, when I say we, like everyone that I've been involved in, all the companies that we run, we come from a place of, um, of community and faith and family. So our success is not money. Um, money does come in. And money does prosper in our what we do because of the cool innovation a lot of times, um, but because it's not our motivator or our driver, um, it doesn't it doesn't bury us. It doesn't create these horrible monsters that can come out. And sometimes, you know, we've we've had experiences more recently where people we've been involved in our business have turned to the dark side, you know, because they've let that money be the the root cause of what they're doing, um, and they've done some dodgy stuff, and we've had to let them go, you know. So that's a real shame, but. You know, once you identify that, you know, and you remove the bad eggs, you can come back to your place of Te Ao Māori or, you know, Te Whono, where everybody's together and doing it for the for the people and the community. 
rather than for yourself. Mm. Which is it's also our downfall, the community approach. Yeah, that's right. Because, you know, I'm not saying, like, it's not being naive, but you've you always got to believe in the power of human spirit. Like, you know, we I'm doing, you know, a bit of faith, like we're doing this to try and join it together. But people always, some people always seem to, like you said, once the money becomes involved, things get a bit blurry and the glasses come, you know, the, mon- the yeah. money-coloured glasses come down in. Yeah. 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 And, um... And that's when you kind of you really you really see the the difference between like a western a western way of doing business. Like I've done so much um, work in that space with with my European you know associates, and they really just purely do not understand why I do what I do. A lot of things I do I do voluntarily. You know I could charge lots of money for what I do, but um, for me what's important, like I said, is lifting up other people. You know, and I have people sort of shaking their heads and going, oh, I can't believe you did that for free. I would have charged. And it's just a different mindset, you know, and what works for one person doesn't work for the other. But for me, it works. It's kind of the same like with um, with artists, whatever kind of artist you are, like entertainer or, or whoever. But sometimes the art is in front of the money. You know, they do it to create stuff for other people to enjoy. And sometimes like, you know, corporates can come in and try to, trying to overtake them and, you know, try to control. Fiddle. Yeah, that kind of stuff. And then, But the artist just wants to do what he wants to do. He doesn't care about, you know. Yeah. He just wants a roof over his head and, and food to eat and create for people to enjoy. And then that's the only thing, you know. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's the difference between our cultures. A lot of it has to do with cultural upbringing and, you know, our family as opposed to me. Yeah. But I'm very aware of that. And I, and I know, um, I'll be completely honest for your viewers, so that they understand it's a very lonely place to have your own uh, way of doing things in an industry that supports one way of doing things, you know. And so, um, you know, sometimes you just have to be that pioneering person that goes, well, I'm going to do it now um, because in 20 years' time, hopefully what I've done is normalised and then people in 20 years' time, more Māori Pacifica, doing what I do, how I do it, um, will feel more normal, you know. That, that's, also been, that's also the... Um in general, the conflict between the Western world and everyone else. It's like a capitalist society versus a Polynesian, like how we... Collective. How our culture is. You know, we're collective, yeah. Like you said, in the world, we've got that village mentality. We're for our families, you know. Yeah. We all help each other, support each other. Yeah. And uh, you know, on the other side, every man's for himself. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, you know, when you when you like, I'll come back to kind of law, right? So we're a multi-million dollar company, right? And and money is the issue for a lot of people, you know. And if you're a, an entity that needs money and you want to learn how we do business, of course you're going to try and figure it out, you know. So um, you know, we've we've had that experience more recently, where you know you've got New Zealand rugby doing what they're doing, and trying to sort of copycat what we're up to. Um, but it just doesn't work. And coming back to your question, you know, sometimes does it bother you? Um, in this instance, it doesn't bother me because, and I've had this experience many times before, when a corporate industry or an entity that's got sort of a little bit more backing or um, credibility than, 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 say, our company, when they come and they take or they borrow or they steal what we've done, I sit back and I go, well, you, good luck with that because you don't have the heart and you don't have the faith and the, and the community behind that concept. And if you don't have that behind it, then it's not really going to succeed. So a lot of the things that I've developed and my husband's developed and we've put out to the world, 
um, you know, we've we've done it really successfully and someone comes and takes it off us and they try to replicate it and it just falls apart and they don't understand why. Um, and the reason is because we we do it with, with our hearts, you know, it's it's genuine, it's authentic and you can't just copy that. And you certainly can't copy community engagement, you know, that's a genuine uh, transaction that happens between people, you know. So, you know, from those early, from the early days, you know, um, going back 15 years, from that, where did you just move on from there? Because, you know, you just would be picked up, picking up all these skills. And then, so you went from studying these clinics, where did you evolve to from there? Where did you set up to after this? It's really weird, actually. So it must have been the opportunity that came, right? Yeah, I think a lot of times opportunities just turned up. And I, I won't lie, there were times where we sort of went, oh, no, this is too big for us. But then, nah, let's just have a crack. And all we're going to find out is a yes or a no. So a good example of that is um, we'd just come back from Tonga. We are living in Tonga where my husband was a high performance manager for Tonga Rugby Union for a year. Um, oh, so um, you got this company, but you have other jobs? You yeah, guys... yeah, yeah. Wherever possible, we just travel with the kids. Yeah, oh, cool. <laughs> the company was actually set up originally so that we could be with the kids. Because in the holidays, we'd be working traditionally, right? So we set it up so that during the holidays, we're actually running holiday programs and our kids were there. So that's actually how it got started. Um, And because you can generate enough money during four holiday programs to actually not work the rest of the year. Oh, wow. Yeah. So for the rest of the year, we were developing new models or coming up with new things or volunteering our time. Um, And it also gave us time to be at the kids' netball tournaments or athletics days, you know? And, yeah, running the sports clubs. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, so sorry, to answer your question, that's kind of how it all fitted. Um, coming back to, what was I saying before, Tonga Rugby, we, so we just come back. Um, so we came back from Tonga and we were living on Waiheke in the family batch because um, we had originally been in Rimiwera before we went to Tonga. When we came back, there was no houses, so we went stayed in the batch for a while. Um, and having lived in Tonga, the pace was so slow, I loved it. When I went to Waiheke, it was a similar pace. So I just told my husband, no, we're not leaving. We're staying. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, to live on Waiheke, you have to have either local money or uh, you commute. And I wasn't going to commute. I really would prefer not to commute every day on the boat. Um, it was just pure random luck that the rec centre on the island, which had been run by YMCA and CLM previously, the tender for that was up. So it was going to market. And one one little thing that I had gotten accustomed to was checking the government electronic tenders list. I'm a bit of a geek, but I'd, I'd read it like, you know, monthly and see if there were any tenders that were coming up that I might be able to tap into. Um, so I had a look at this particular tender and they were looking for an operator to run the facility. So it was the high school gym during the day and then outside of school hours, it was community gym. So basketball court, um, full fitness suite, you name it, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, I did the tender application and did a presentation to the council and to the local board and we won the tender. So that was an eight-year eight year contract. Um, they had a pretty twisted ending because they cut it short at three years because we had quadrupled the revenue to the <laughs> victims of our own success. Because we started on the contract and it was just an operator fee, so council would pay us a fee, it was about 80 grand, so it was enough for me and my husband to have a 40 grand salary each. It was enough to live on the island and be, be happy. Um, what we did was we brought all the clubs on the island to the to the gym to be based out of the gym. We taught them how to get grants so that they could be paying for accommodation to be 
like for rent to be based at the gym. Um, and then we also bought the local um, little holiday program for after school care, which costed 500 bucks because the lady just wanted money for the paints and the um, felt tips that she had bought. Um, she owned the local ECE program, so she had a pretty good business. Um, so we bought that and we turned that into a quarter of a million dollar industry. So the holiday programs, before school, after school holiday programs. And we also did the Jerome Kano camp. So we had Jerome Kano come over, hang out with the kids for three <coughs> days. So, you know, it was just this big, awesome venture. And like I said, we quadrupled the revenue to the centre uh, in the space of three years. And because we did that, Auckland Council said, oh, you don't need the grant anymore, so we're going to take that off you. Um, so we went back to the coffers, back to the coffers, back to the um, drawing board and said, how can we manage this? Because essentially the um, grant was paying for my husband and I, and the rest of the money was going into the development of the sports. So we were buying hoops and we were doing programs and getting equipment for the kids. Um, and so we came to the conclusion that we had to um, give the rec centre back to the community. And so we resigned from our roles. Um, the community took over the running and operations and it's still run like that today. Yeah, oh, cool. they don't have the holiday program running quite as good as we did because I knew how to get funding from Oscar. And, but, you know, you can't do it all. Yeah. But that's a, an example of something that was really big at the time. You know, I was like, oh, this is a big deal. Council grant and council facility. Um, but we just... I, I understand the council just pulling out when you guys have become sustainable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't quite sustainable, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I understand yeah. that. But do you think that's probably not a good thing for them to do uh, sometimes? I mean, they, uh, let's just be completely honest. They would never have done that to a Bailangi organisation. Never. If it was YMCA or CLM, never. But because we had adopted a community <laughs> empowerment model, um, it was it was it was actually quite horrible how that all ended. We actually had a community group of people come in and actually um, confront the local board for their decision to pull that. Yeah, it was really it was 150 people in yeah. the in the facility. They set that up. And uh, what was really amazing, and this is where community impact comes if you do things right way. Um, the the following local board election, um, that local board, most of them most of them were out. Oops, sorry, most of them were ousted, and the people who had come and supported us in that rec centre and stood by us put themselves on the board. And now the chair of the Waiheke Local Board is one of our big supporters when we were there. So, you know, it might have been pretty stink what happened at the time, and we certainly moved on into better things, which is cool. But what happened in the community was uplifting, you know, because that's never going to happen again to anyone because this community were like, uh, nah, you can't do that. So they've put themselves into positions of power so that it can't happen again. Yeah. Now, so it was a now they're a good, good ending. Good ending and a good connection for you guys. Yeah. yeah. And we can uh, we were we were also running the um we were running the Waiheke Rams and um sports club there as well, which was at the time only had a senior team, uh no juniors. My boys wanted to play league. Even though there was a rugby club yeah. <laughs> on the island. Yeah. Um so, you know, we, we put the feathers out to the primary. We ended up being, um, my husband was president, I was secretary, so we took over from the existing people. Um, started off with a with a $16,000 debt to the local um, uh, liquor supplier. <laughs> so we had to adopt a voluntary model to run the bar and the <coughs> kitchen, you know. So 
that was cool because we left that um, club with five junior teams uh, and a senior team, so from nothing or one senior team. Um, and now, even now, so we look back, that's what, 10, 12 years later, and they're still running all their junior teams. And, the, you know, the, the, the young ones who were in our senior team or our under-17s team, um, they are now their kids are playing in the junior grades and running the club. You know, so that's, to me, that's when I smile because, you know, you look back and you look at the impact that you've had. It's ripple ripple effect really wide and it's continued. Yeah. So after that um, experience with Wake Island, um, was it New Generation Sports? Yeah, so, New Sports Generation New Sports Limited. Generation Limited. So, <laughs> Which was actually copied, by the way. There was a guy who completely copied everything to the T, he called, but he called it Next Generation Sports Limited. So we were New Sports Generation, he was Next Generation Sport. Copied everything. We, if you went to his website and my website, they were exactly the same. Oh. It was so bad. Yeah, but anyway, so, that's, so oh, that's finished now. <laughs> but, so there's fake Instagram accounts. Yeah. You know, do it exactly to a T, so you think you're getting the one, you know, because you hear them. All it took was to, to get the two letters confused and you're, mm-hmm. and you're on the wrong. Because like, why? So, sorry, so, sorry, so what did your company look like after the Waiheke thing? So we actually moved to town and we shut down for about a year. Didn't do anything because we just had to, we actually came back, we came back here pretty down a buzz from what happened on Waiheke. Um, and coincidentally, at the same time, uh, my husband's grandmother was not doing well. She was 97. So I adopted um, the role of caregiver. So for three months, I lived with grandma in her room and I cared for her. Um, and I was also doing manusina. <laughs> <laughs> Randomly decided to go back to play rugby full time. Um, so that sort of, we just took time off. We took time off. And then after that, um, NSG started picking up slowly, doing contracts more around community engagement framework building. So instead of delivering sports, we were producing policies and um, frameworks for other organisations like Ministry of Education, Ministry of Social Development, mm-hmm. um, high schools, so developing you know rugby academy programmes and frameworks. And um, so a lot of the stuff moved or morphed into more um, administ- administrative work and contract work. Um, and then it got to the point where a really lovely man, who I won't name, but he's from Te Aratu, um, and he was a, he was a politic, politician. Um, he asked me to do a project um, for him or develop a project for him, and I, did the, I developed this project, an action plan and a strategic plan for him. Um, and he asked me to send an invoice for the work that I had done, um, and I sent the invoice, and he came back to me and he said, oh, I think you've made a mistake on your invoice. And I said, why? And he said, oh, come in. So we had a little chat, and he explained, he explained to me that the work that I'd produced was not worth 500 It was worth at least 5000 um, you know, just because he's in the market, and this is, you know, so the work you've done is really credible. So I think I did an evaluation report, and then I developed a strategic plan. Um, and so I went home that day and my husband's laughing. He's just like, you could be a CEO, you know. And I was just like, oh. So I sent the invoice back um, and I just charged the same amount. But the following project that I did, I added a zero. So this is like the story of my life. I added a zero to every invoice that I did from that point on. Um, so the hourly rate was an extra zero and the, obviously the end result was an extra zero. And the organisations paid it. And what I realised was that I had been undervaluing myself or my skills for a very long time. Um, and so that's how I ended up being CEO, really, because after that, 
the work that I was doing, I was a trustee for County's Monaco Sport Foundation for six years. Um, I was on the ethics committee for AUT University for five years. So I was on boards already um, and I was doing consulting work really. Um, so it got to the point where my resume was good enough to apply for a CEO role and I got appointed. So yeah, that was the journey, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Someone else had to tell me I was worth more than what I thought I was. And even then I have <clears throat> imposter syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because like ever since that 1% thing came out a while ago, you know, and you see these big companies and you see, you know, how much time they waste. Because I hear stories about, you know, this, this, you get so many meetings in one day. Yeah. Who, who, who does any work, you know? And like, you know why? Because they can afford it. Because there's big money out there, but it, but it's out of everyone else's reach, so we don't even know how much is out there. Yeah. And so when we think we're worth this much, they go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we'll pay that. You know what I mean? It's like it's a hidden... I have a really good example of that. Yeah. So when we first pitched Kanaloa Hawaii, so the, the MLR franchise, right? So we've been New Zealand-based, right, this whole time. When we went and set up Hawaii and we pitched the Kanaloa Hawaii presentation to potential investors. Within two weeks, we had four offers, sorry, three offers at 25 million US. That's how quick it happened. And it was because we didn't think like New Zealanders. We didn't say, oh, we're only worth, what's what's the blues worth these days? 10 mil, we're only worth that. We, we Actually, we're Pacifica, so we're less than that. <laughs> Does that make sense? Mm. That's how most people would think. We went, no, nah, no. Nah. We're just going to aim high, mm. put it out there, and see see what comes. So It's right there. You aim higher because they've got the money. They do. The, the money's there. The money is there. Like yeah. We, yeah, like the you money's said. everywhere else, just not in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but, but it's our attitude too. I, I, honestly, it's, yeah. it's New Zealanders. We have this reserved uh, belief in ourselves that we are not worth more than this. Especially, and it's worse for Māori Pacifica because we're below. You know, we believe we're below. Um, so yeah, when I when I did my first pitch out there for twenty five mil US, and we were selling X amount of the company, so that's how we went out to f- to first to market to see how what we were worth. So we had three three people hit us back and say we'd be keen to look at this. Can we have a look? And so we had to enter into NDAs and all that stuff. And that's when I realised, oh man, it is possible, you know. But to be fair, we do have a product within our our business model that's quite quite exciting for anyone that's wanting to buy a company, you know. But um, that was that was the real home hitter for me. I was just like, man, the money's overseas, yeah, but you put it out there, people will come. You just have to pitch it right. And we pitched it in a completely different way to anyone else would have, you know, like I'm not your typical CEO. And, yes, we did talk about the fact that I'm a, you know, Māori Pacifica female in this industry, and that did have a lot of a lot of sway as well. Yeah. But, mm. <laughs> Crazy, eh? That's awesome because, you know, you're already a trailblazer, especially if you've been a CEO of a, you know, a company like that. You know, when just going back, were these all were they American based or were they coming? Most of them coming out of Hawaii or the companies that were coming? You know, one was here. Oh, okay. That's when I went. Whoa, the ones in America didn't really bother me too much because I knew America had money. But when a New Zealand company was interested, that's when I went, oh, wow, this is interesting. Because we've had existing super rugby clubs forever, you know, like more than 25 years. So why have we not been able to 
sell our clubs or get get serious investment um, from local money. But then when you look at what's happening right now, Super New Zealand Rugby, you've got Forsyth Bar who are pitching at, you know, the billions, you know, or, well, they're looking at an approach, which is at the billions. And I'm sitting here going, the money's always been here, we've just never asked. We're too protective. We want to own everything, but we can't. Yeah. So well, what's your view on that? Because, you know, two weeks ago when I was listening to the radio, it felt like that silver, silver leak deal was pretty much done. Mm. You know, the only thing holding up was the, was the players, the players. Yep. And then David Cook, you know, he came out, you know, and, and because because of his background in business, you know, he's been the uh, CEO of, uh, what was it, the media company over in... Fairfax. Yeah, Fairfax. So he's been there. And he's, he's an ex-All Black. Yeah, and he's, and he's captain, the first All Black captain. First World Cup. That's right. Yeah. Everyone, no, no one will ever forget he that. He has it all. That's right. So he, he, ticks, he ticks all the boxes. Yeah. And I think as soon as he came out, people went, oh, okay. And then when he offered the chance of it... We have a new champion. That's right. We go, oh, okay, we're not going to... I think part of me was like... Uh, I, I felt like um, I could see where the players' um, association was coming from because for me, I just it doesn't feel like... It feels wrong for an American company to own the All Blacks. You know, that's just me because, honestly, I'm, I'm 110% All Blacks, you know, yeah. all the way. And yeah. I tell these guys, you know... And then when he came out with that other, you know, his, so his... Scenario. Yeah, his scenario, his business proposition was, you know, part of it going out to... Public. Public. IPOs, yeah. Do do you think that that there's a, that can work? You know, especially, does that kind of touch on that that community kind of based kind of thing as well, or...? It does, it does. So there's arguments for both. Um, I have no issue with either proposal. I think both are valid and they should be looked at. My issue is the way that New Zealand rugby players went, went about it. Um, so this this whole facade about how we're trying to you know protect Māori and Pacifica culture that's that was initially what they said go away Silver Lake so to actually find out really I mean I knew this all along I actually knew earlier that um, it was more about the stake that New Zealand Players Association would lose if Silver Lake come on board so it was put out there to the public that New Zealand Rugby Players Association were trying to protect Māori Pacifica culture, but actually all they were trying to do was stop the deal so that they could get more from the deal, and that was the negotiations. And they're still negotiating. So to me, an organisation that fronts something with, we want to protect Māori Samoan or Pacifica culture, but then actually is in there negotiating a higher rate from the deal, it's not genuine, you know, it's not authentic. So that was the only thing that I didn't like about New Zealand Rugby Players Association getting involved, but the alternative pitch is something that should be looked at. You know, the fact that Dave's come up with this idea. What I worry about, though, is that Forsyth Bar and all of these people who are coming to the table now, where have they been for the past 26 years when New Zealand Rugby were $30 million in the hole after World Cup? Where were they when... The Blues are already looking. So the Blues are looking for an investor. Chiefs are looking for an investor. I know that Jeremy Curra has helped Highlanders with investment in the past as well. You know, so these these are all organisations that could have done with some investment at the time. Why didn't why didn't this come into play earlier? Um, New Zealand Rugby's needed a, a bailout for years. Everybody knows that. So to me, it's just another front. It's just another way to stall Silver Lake. Uh, and and allow New Zealand Rugby Players Association to actually have more time in the in the boardroom to actually get a a better deal from the Silver Lake deal because it's going to go ahead eventually. Um, 
Where, where were they before? It tells me it's just a PR stunt, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're bang on. Mm. Yeah, we can talk about all this stuff and this is a better idea. And But the reality is it's never happened before for a reason, you know, an IPO for. If, if we were to put um, the All Blacks to market for, for everybody to own a piece of that, chunk of that, a little bit like that little piece of paradise down the line, down Tasman, I think it was, um, how long would that sustain itself? That's my biggest concern. Mm. You know, like, and I and I and I to be fair, I don't like the Silver Lake deal either because both deals rely on a source of income that's owned by someone else. They're not generating their own revenue. See, our model includes a model where we're generating our own profits. So we're generating our own revenue, completely new revenue from from products that are not rugby games. You know, and that's the problem with. Um, older versions of, of sports organisations, so New Zealand rugby, netball, basketball, all of them have very old um, representatives at that board level. They're older people and they don't actually have um, an understanding of social media and they don't have an understanding of influencing. They don't have an understanding of, of modern products, um, digital products and merchandising, all these things, you know. I mean, if you look at New Zealand rugby, um, our, our, our rugby jerseys should be getting sold all over the place, but it's really not. You know, I think Perth is the place where it's sold the most. Mm. That's because there's, there's a lot of New Zealanders over there. Yeah, but you that's know, the issue, right? We we don't know how to market ourselves properly because we won't adopt modern ways of doing things. And that was one of the things why I sort of leaned towards the Silver Lake deal because they're an international company. They're into technology all over the world. They've got they've got sports. They've, I think they've got Manchester City as well. Yeah. So, so they know what they they know what they're doing in regards to sports teams, but but like you said about the All Blacks, it's the brand, right? It's all about the brand. It's getting the brand out there. You know, when I think about what kind of brand is successful these days and in, in the, the world, it's the NBA, NBA brand. Mm-hmm. Well, look what they, they've done around the world. Yeah. And and people tune into the NBA. That's like the pinnacle of basketball. Yeah. You know, LeBron James, a household name everywhere. Yeah. Well, if you look at the NBA. The thing that makes them successful are their individual influences. So every single player, like if you look at Jam Morant and, and even Michael Jordan, who's been gone for the game forever, right? They are key figures of influence. And anything that they do or eat or drink or wear becomes marketable. We don't have that with the All Blacks. There is not, we don't have key pinnacle players. You know, like, like FIFA, same thing. You know, they have people who, you know, have played soccer for years, but they have specific people like Ronaldo, Cristiano, um, who else? Um, what's his Messi. name? Messi. Messi, even Messi, yeah. right? So, you know, these are household names in football and everything that they wear, that they do, that everything is marketable. And that's where they make their money. It's on the influencing side of things, but it's not something that we are ready for in New Zealand. Mm. You know, we're so scared of, of modern technology. And I think that's why we're falling behind. Oh, yeah, we totally are. Mm. Totally you know, are. I think we did kind of have someone, you know, when we talked about prison of influence, I think when you have a McDonald's big after, you're like, Jonah Lomi was probably the only... He was number one. Yeah, and, so, and we, never, we never had anyone come after that. You know, Daniel Carter's kind of been up there, you know, when he was with Adidas and that, because he was, he was a brand on, on himself, but it's, it's pretty crazy how we never followed up, because John, Jonah was a... He had a, he had a PlayStation game off. Yeah. still the number one... PlayStation game ever, yeah. but you know, and he had the burger, he had Reebok, and then he, you know, he was the kind of first guy to actually utilize or make take advantage of that stuff. You know? Yeah, and that was because he was different. 
We didn't follow up on that. We didn't follow up on the journal Yeah, that's what I was saying. And we are Dan Carter, we didn't even take that take advantage of that. And but this comes back to the way we are as New Zealanders. Mm. If, you, if you look at Stephen Adams, right? Mm. Even though he's loved globally, loved his his Instagram following is minimal compared to someone else, same year, same height, same everything. If you look at Dan Carter, he's struggling. I think he might have gone over a million now, but only just mm. a million followers. And, and it's like, bro, this guy was rated the, I think, first or second most eligible bachelor a few years ago. Mm. You know, like, that's a big thing. He was next to Cristiano Ronaldo. Like, he was up there, you know. And so I think it's, I can actually talk about this because I've had a conversation with Dan about this, like, specifically. He asked me, do you think I'm marketable? You know? And that's, a, that's because he's a Kiwi, you know, and he's genuine. He's a great guy. He's such a nice guy. Like, people have a perception of this man, but he is a really down-to-earth, lovely man, and he would do anything for young people. Um, he was supposed to come join us at Law if things had worked out the way we were supposed to with Super Rugby. He was going to be part of our team. Not playing, but coaching and developing. Um, but his biggest fear was that if he came on board as an influencer with our company, because we have X amount of influencers as part of our model, if he came on board, he wouldn't get enough um, followers. So his fear was that he wouldn't be followed enough. And I was just like, man, that's such a humble thing to say for someone like you who has global appeal. But, you know, I think it was based on the fact that he had done the, um, uh, with Richie, he'd done the water bottles and, you know, he'd had his gas program as well, the, 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 the um, retail company as well, and it hadn't worked out. But, you know, that's when it comes down to matching what you want to achieve with people with certain skills and networks, you know. And in our company, we have we have that. We have the networks with young people, digital, IT, you know. But in New Zealand rugby, there's none of that. Yeah. The other thing is, like, speaking about the brand of, of the All Blacks brand and why we're behind, <laughs> when I compare it to, like, um, American sports, you know, ESPN, the, the 30 for 30 doc- documentaries, right? I'm talking about yeah. what, what bring what... What makes a brand is a story behind the brand, right? It's the stories. The stories behind anything. Yeah. Well, you know, and you put it out there. 30 for 30, these are sports stories. There's so many sports stories, and it's like uh, they've got thousands of hours of footage yeah. of everything. Yeah, and they just chop it up. And they just chop it up and make it into a documentary, make it yeah. into a story, a story that people can watch and see and, and you know, get inspired by well, whatever comes out of it, and it builds the brand or whatever it is. Like I don't think there's thousands of hours of behind the scenes of any sports in in New Zealand. No, I, you know, I'm on Amazon Prime, right? They've yeah. got the All Blacks. They've got this documentary on Amazon Prime. Yeah, they're just starting now. Yeah, but if, if if you're going off your hours of footage and all that, there's a there's a thirty for thirty about the World Cup final, you know, and how Nelson Mandela, you know, the Battle of Apartheid. Mm. If we're going off your theory, then all these people would have watched. That, that 30 for 30, and they would have thought, you know, I'm going to go play rugby in that. You know, I'm going to start following rugby. If you're saying that that's the kind of influence that that has. Now, the problem with us, we don't have more stories. The, these little stories that are in the background that people know, but, you know, there's there's nothing to, well, to We We to also don't, we don't have compelling stories. That's right. Yeah. And we don't have um, shocking stories. So you know how I've released all these videos recently. Mm. The reason why people are talking about it is because a company just did that. You know, like, isn't that illegal? Or is she, what's going to happen? You know, so like, it was so shocking mm. that people wanted to look at it, even though they're probably not interested in it. You know what I mean? 
Um, we don't have that because we're New Zealanders. We're so reserved and we're so respectful and we're so polite and we're so PC, you know. But you, you anywhere else in the world, especially America, mm-hmm. you know, that's normal. Like, mm. you know, dropping a recording or name dropping someone and or, or backstabbing someone, it's normal everyday practice. And if you look at anything that has a viral following on, on Insta, Facebook, whatever, it's the shock element, you know, or it's the curiosity kills the cat. So in marketing, those are the two strategies. And if you if you look at any New Zealand organisation, we just don't have that. Our marketing strategy is purely based on on very PC, normal, this is what we're doing. There's no shocking elements and there's no curiosity elements, you know. So we don't market our products properly. But I'm saying you can get all those elements if you get from them. hidden stories, and yeah. stories that people know but don't really look into it. But there might be, even in the grassroots level, in, in club rugby level, there's, there's, there must be tons of stories out there. Yeah. You know, you can do a 30 for 30 on. You know? You're just hurrying. Uh, I, I don't know if the world's ready for uh, what amount of rugby's um, no, but under, uh, the fight said that the under 15 uh, open rugby games. You remind me of a story that was aired, and that was um, Daniel Belden. Years ago, when he was a kid, he was terribly bullied by his parents. And it was a whole segment about parents, you know, like tough parents. And poor old Daniel Bowden used to get it from his dad every weekend, you know, and he was always in tears. But years ago, I watched that and I'll never forget it because it was such a shock. You know, it was like, oh, my gosh, this poor kid. He gets roasted by his dad every weekend for not kicking the ball or for not passing it straight and... Uh, you know, like those are that those are the types of stories that we can find at grassroots level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but we can make them like marketable. Marketable. Yeah, yeah. we can. Yeah. We can. Well, that's the other thing too. Um, in New Zealand, we Sky TV is our broadcaster, right? And um, our our proposal was that we had our own broad- broadcasting arm, so we generate our own uh, our own segments of work and our own uh, footage to sell to the world. You know, so this is something New Zealand rugby's never even considered. You know, like you, you own all of this footage, and you know why do you not have your own broadcasting? They they do own a percentage of Sky TV, but you know what? If Sky TV is doing good, they do good. What you should be doing is running your own broadcasting arm and owning your own content, and then being in charge of selling that content. You know, if they sold All Blacks footage to ESPN, um, you know, because they owned the content, then you know they'd be getting great endorsements through broadcasting. So it's another avenue that they just don't they don't get. Did, did they try that with the World Cup coming on Spark Sport because they owned the right? What was was no, that no, no, part of the interview? Oh, okay. I, <laughs> and, and you know, and I'm going to be honest, it was a tough watch. What you know, watching those games, I'm so used to having you know Brian Nisbet and all that, and then to have other guys. I was like, no. So I don't know if you know this, but I started the um, People versus Spark Sport campaign. Well, Thank you. So we had, um, we had about three and a half thousand um, followers on Facebook, and um, I took Spark to basically social media, and I complained about everything. So I had, I was someone who had bought a big screen TV so we could watch the games, and it was yeah, that's right. And um, because I have a bit of skills in negotiation, um, I found that when I was um, ringing the Toby, you know, Autobot program, I wasn't getting anywhere. None of the concerns that I had was being dealt with so I actually went all the way up the chain to I ended up speaking with the CEO Um, but my Facebook page actually created such a ruckus uh, such a public ruckus um, that um, Spark Sport had to give every customer a 
um, you know, the smart device, the Google TV, uh, an Apple TV or a, whatever that Google thing is. Uh, um, Chromecast. Chromecast. Chromecast, that's yes. the one. So, so initially, Spark said, and very publicly, it's not our fault. It's an international issue. It's got nothing to do with us. But I pushed them so far and got so much evidence against them and put it out on social media so hard that they actually had to publicly ensure that everybody got support. So everybody that had an issue got home in care, so they had to send a technician out to the houses. Everybody got a, a Chromecast or an I Apple I ITV, whatever one worked. Um, and then at the end, those who applied for a refund also had to get a refund. So, you know, that's the kind of... <laughs> That was my little thing with Spark Sport, but I believe New Zealand Rugby had nothing to do with whether or not they got any, you know, investment from that or not. It was all definitely just Spark. <laughs> you know, I, I want to thank you because we did get our money back. And did you apply? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my they, brother. They my had brother denied did. all all legal um, claims, but because of that, yeah, you know, the they thing had is, to agree to it. If you hadn't actually made the movement or actually started pushing we would have just went you know the way it's cute oh well that's the way it is you know they tried because remember they they had this rollout where they tried to do the formula one or something said, yeah oh, this is we had gonna, the same problem yeah yeah and then and, and we should have known oh well, you know and they kept saying no no it's going to be okay by the time it comes to you know the first game of the world cup it's going to be all right and i just yeah. i just buffered right all the way through the pop games you know so um i was in the media that we had threatened to sue Spark for two hundred and fifty million, so that's when everything changed. As soon as we did that, they just went, "What do you want? How? We'll do this, this, and this." Um, and I got a whole lot of um, flack in the public from the media that um, that we didn't triumph in the end. We didn't go to court. And we didn't get our two hundred and fifty million. But what they didn't realise was that the whole uh, media campaign was about get, holding them to account mm. and actually having the customers, um, you know, getting their refund. So we did win. You know, it wasn't really about suing $250 million. It was about making sure everybody was heard. Um, I ended up at the World Cup, so I was lucky. <laughs> I ended up going. Oh, nice. I was there for the final and for the for the awards. It was crazy. Well, I, thought, I thought it was a big awards night because usually they're quite big, but it was, it was really small and I felt really bad because all the people who would usually be in the awards were not in the awards. And when I came out, you know, we had our lanyards and stuff, and they were all standing there going, how did you get in? <laughs> so, well, how, how did you how, not get in? <laughs> how did you end up? Oh, um, um, uh, well, I yeah. paid my way. Oh, yeah. Okay. I shouted my husband for his birthday. Um, and I thought, we, I thought you might have done a spark sports deal, and they were like, hey, don't, you know, after, after pushing us, you this know, is what I have this to, is what we're going to give yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. This is the extent that I had to go to to watch the game. You have to reimburse me for this whole trip. No, I had I had actually planned to take my husband for his birthday, and um, when we when we got the package, it came with the awards, but I just didn't realise how, um, and it was really cool, because we were going for a reason, so for me anyway, I went for Fats. Fats um, was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Oh, awesome. Um, and it was just pure luck that um, Graham Henry was also being inducted. I didn't realise he was also being inducted, but he's my husband's mentor. My my husband lived with him in, in Wales for a while, and they, you know, they did rugby together for years, so, Yeah. <laughs> Ended up there. What, you didn't, were you there for the semi-final though? No. Oh, okay. No, I just I was just there for the final. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh. final awards home. <laughs> oh, wait, I got Disneyland in. That was real cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm still recovering from that um, from that semi-final. 
I'm, I'm, the, I'm that kind of guy. Like, you know, I just don't, I won't, you know, as soon as, if, when I, the final result, you know, I was, at, I was at a friend's house. I blamed him, you know, yeah. man, if I was at home, we yeah. would have won, you know. It's yeah. your fault, it's your fault. Yeah. And then I turn, I haven't watched any highlights, I haven't watched, read anything about him. Like, you know, it's time to bury the head in the sand yeah. till uh, It was a very sad campaign. Mm. Oh, I was laughing. You know, unlike my friend over here, I'm not an All Blacks fan. I, I relinquish my... Um, relinquish. Uh, yeah. I renounced oh. my throne. Uh, long time ago. There's five, other, five million other New Zealanders. <laughs> keep your relinquishing yourself. <laughs> well, but only because... No, no, only because... I didn't find them exciting anymore. They just won every game. And I'm yeah. like, yeah. I was getting bored. It was really. time. It was time. And then, like, I watched Manu Samoa, and I'll be so excited because I don't know if they're going to win or lose. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. and I was like, yeah. edge on my seat kind of stuff. The, and fr- the French are the same. Frustrating. Mm. You know, you swear, and like, you know, it's like frustrating. <laughs> it's like, man, I've never experienced this watching yeah. the game before. Like, yeah. Well, you're, a, you're a manly fan. <laughs> 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 no, so, I know. I know. I, know. Um, I went. Like I didn't know um, what the outcome of semi-finals was going to be, and I had my England jersey in my bag, yeah. <laughs> and I wore my England jersey to the final, <laughs> and I ended up in a bunch of South Africans. <laughs> it was not good. Um, but now we're talking about World Cups. I was thinking because then um, Leon came out with his documentary. Oh um, yeah, Oceans Apart. Have you seen it? Yeah, we watched it down in Wellington. Mm. Heartbreaking. Yeah, but reality. It was the re- we watched the Rebenny one, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was you know we, we watched. So it was me, him, uh, two of our other close friends, you know, um, Danny and Stace. And he was like, "Bro, have you seen this documentary um, that Danny Little put out?" And now, and when he, we watched it, and I was like, it kind of showed like that's when I went, okay, yeah, we really our, our Pacific, yeah, you know, it's awesome what Daniel set up, but we really need to support our guys that are going over there, or you know, with yeah. the life skills and that, yeah. Well, having lived in Tonga yeah. and experiencing it firsthand, that that's when it really hit home for me. So I played for Samoa, so I already knew all that, you know, the, the ins and outs and the hardships of, of being in a team that's not fully funded. Like, we, we went to Spain for the uh, World Cup qualifier, our female team, right, Manusina. Um, we arrived two days before we played. All our girls' ankles were this fat, you know, like, it was just ridiculous. Um, the meals were fine, standard meals, one drumstick and rice. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, we, we just knew that we had a real crap set up. Everyone else had been there a week or two weeks prior, getting ready. We arrived two days before the game, you know. Um, we qualified for World Cup, even though it was tough times. But we had a relatively well-funded campaign versus other Samoan teams, you know. So, like I said, living in Tonga got to experience all the politics there, the hardships. Um, we brought our under-20s team to New Zealand before going up to Japan so they could pre-camp in New Zealand because there was nothing in Tonga to manage the team. Um, but the way the IRD fund- uh, IRD, IRB funding at the time, World Rugby at the time, um, the money came in two days after we moved to New Zealand. So, you know, we had done a, a budget, like all, all above board, all through the board, all through um, World Rugby. Um, the budget was approved three weeks before travel, um, but they didn't bank the money until two days after we'd arrived in New Zealand. So imagine you're a team manager or coach and you're trying to book your vans, your accommodation, get your food. Um, flights were already covered, but not to New Zealand, so we had to do the flights. So we all racked up these expenses on our credit cards, as you do, because you big still borrow and just get it done. But then, of course, when it comes to being reimbursed, 
World Rugby say, no, that's a retrospective expense, we can't pay you. So we experienced that firsthand. You know, this is actually how, by design, World Rugby does their business with the Pacific Island nations. You know, and you hear of all these examples of Samoa, Tonga, Fiji, where they've gone around and they've got um, donations from churches, etc. I know that people heavily criticise the Pacific Island nations for that stuff. But the truth is, I know what it's like. I was there, you know, and we're like New Zealanders who do business New Zealand way. And we were still being treated like we don't know how to manage finances. And it was like, hold up. You had an, a budget that was approved three weeks ago, which was in time with their their timings. And yet we didn't have re funds released to us until two days after the tour started. That is not normal, you know. That's not normal for even a primary school standard, you know. So um, I have uh, a big heart for Dan Leo and and anyone really that's that's trying to protect our Pacific Island players. Um, because at the end of the day, unless you've been in the system and you've seen it for your own eyes, you actually don't know how impactful it is for players. And so watch Rupani, you know, I mean, I spent a lot of time with those boys in the Blues because my brother-in-law's a Blues, my two brothers played, well, my brother played for the Blues. I knew what it was like for them, you know, for, for the boys coming in from the islands. You know, they've been dumped with all this money, you know, 80000 up to 250000 a year and they've come from nothing. I, I used to be... I used to be out with the boys, you know, drinking and having a good time while they, you know, threw their money around, shouting every girl and guy in the bar for, for three nights in a row. So I, I knew what it was like for them. And I, you know, you gotta, you just got to feel sorry for them because they're not managed well. They're just taken advantage of and then they get dished back to the islands, you know, bye-bye. And a lot of times the organisations will find a way to, you know, use those players, specifically players like Rupini who are just amazing use them and as soon as they've finished with them they'll find a way to get them out you know like let them get into a brawl or let them get into a car crash or let them get into a diu you know yeah sad you know what one of my main criticisms for the rugby world cup these days is that you don't see the best players in that competition anymore i no, mean you don't. they're all playing club exactly exactly and you know when you think when i think of the um the football world cup the 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 FIFA yeah you, I think they got it right because everyone plays for their own country yeah you know yeah and you see the best players in the world in the FIFA World Cup and because money. of the because of the contracts and money and on the rugby side yeah it's like yeah oh. money talks eh that's the problem with sport you know money money is the is is the reason why players don't play for their for their home nation if World Rugby had the balls to make a call top down, then you'd see that happen, you know. If they actually said players must be released for, then it would be a, a rule that anyone had to abide by, but they don't have the balls to do that because they lose revenue from those clubs that support them. That's that's a that's a pretty crazy system because you'd think, you know, like the way the FIFA is or the IOC, like they're the over, you know, the overarching, you know. So they have the final call and to be dictated, for the IRB to be dictated by Businesses, yeah. and it's just like your your it's like your your son or, or your daughter telling you, you know, who's the boss? You know, it's exactly what, the same. What kind of, just, you know, what kind so of, how does how does FIFA do it? How does FIFA do it? Oh, because FIFA, did they know? The, you know, FIFA and the IOC and that, you know, that's why you always see these kind of like, there's always someone getting called out in there. But I think what. I think why oh, how they have FIFA, drama eh, too. Yeah, yeah, they have the dramas yeah. and all that. But you know how FIFA. They know that the World Cup is the centerpiece. Like all eyes are 
you know, on the, on the world. So you've got to have your best product there. And that's what I, I thought the IRB would think that, you know, you'd want to make Samoa, you'd want these guys that maybe have played one test for the All Blacks but haven't been in the system for five years. To be able, able to play back, come back. Exactly. Yeah, so that the quality's That's right. Amazing. But they're scared, eh? Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, they are scared because if they allowed that, Pacifica teams would win. That's right. That's that's the long and the short of it. Yeah, I think they just they just look back at the nineteen ninety one World Cup when Brandy Ma went and scored in the corner. They're like, "What? Yeah, where the I hell did these guys come yeah. from?" Yeah, I know it. I know it. it. It all comes back to eyes and money. You know, um, the Pacifica community, like kind of law, right? New Zealand rugby said that if we entered Super Rugby, they'd be worried that we couldn't play. Against the likes of the Crusaders, and I said, oh, that's bullshit. Man, "Man, I can tell you right now, we we might have trouble beating the Crusaders, but we'll thrash the Chiefs." At the time, Chiefs were doing real crap, right? I think everyone's having <laughs> trouble beating <laughs> the Crusaders. Yeah, and I was like, "Hey, wait, wait before we get, it, it I'm, really I'm, a, I'm, a a chief, I'm a Chiefs fan." <laughs> 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 I was like, <laughs> "But it was it, that was the yeah, yeah, best yeah. way for them to understand that they had put themselves up on this big pedestal." And I'm just like, mm, "Actually, I think you're talking from a place of fear, threat." And, and it was. It, it definitely was. It was for us. They were scared that we were going to be able to bring in revenue that they wanted, that they were going to have players that would beat their teams. Um, I'll give you a quick example. Sonny Bill Williams was a player that we put on the table in front of New Zealand Rugby. And the chairman said to my face, no, what we'll do is we'll take Sonny Bill and we'll put him into the China Lions team. And then next year we can see if he comes back to you guys. How about that? That, that's how that's how they approached it. And I was just like, uh, no, Sonia Bill's going to play for our team if he plays. Not you decide where he's going to play. You know, and now Sonny's just like not even interested. But, <laughs> you know, that that's how New Zealand rugby think. That's how they that's how they talk. And, you know, it makes no sense to anyone but themselves. No, no sense at all. Is that because they've just been, like the guys at the top, they've just been there too long? Too long. And that's why we haven't, you know... Mm-hmm. Careful your book. That's kind of yeah. yeah. That's what I mean. You know, we've got too many old heads there or you know, is it time for some fresh blood in there or and, and the thing is, how do you get to the top? Because it seems like it's uh, I'm not Yeah. The but, problem is that you need lots of years of experience for starters and you need proven capability in certain industries to get there. But by the time you get there, you're all washed up and your innovation's gone and you you're not new. You know, you don't have that way of thinking, you know, so there needs to be space for at least one or two young people on the board for starters, just just to, just to start. Uh, I mean, they, blood, yeah. yeah, just fresh blood, new ideas. Um, what else? They really just need to open their, open their ears to different ways of doing things. When COVID happened um, and they decided to lay off a whole lot of staff, before that happened, I'd actually suggested to my line manager that New Zealand Rugby look to ask the staff if they would consider volunteering some of their hours. Because I can guarantee you a lot of the staff would do that. They'd rather still work for the company than be laid off and have nothing. Um, New Zealand Rugby should have adopted that because I can guarantee you all those, there was I think it was 70% or 50% of staff got laid off. can't remember now, but a lot of them. Um, I'm lucky because I was doing some work, <laughs> some project work around the same time around Pacifica leadership, and we I had a couple of interviews with three ladies who were laid off, and I asked them that question: Would you have worked voluntary or or reduced hours? And they said, Yeah, 
in a heartbeat because it's not really the money, it was the passion working for New Zealand rugby. And also it was the hardest part for them was going home and telling their families that they no longer had a job. So to still be in a job would have been better than having no job. So they all ended up on, um, you know, like benefits. So I think anyone would say they'd rather be in a role at New Zealand Rugby, even if it is five to ten hours a week, then um, nothing. Especially those who had aspired to, to, to work. Be there. Yeah, can, you know, could you want to? These people might have come through the club club system. You know, they went from being managers or you know going from there, and then to finally get to the ZRFE, and then for them to to not. If they, like you said, like if they had kind of adopted a community thing, you went, okay, but because they're so business mindset, yeah. like they're like this, well, you won't want to work for us because, you know. Yeah, you wouldn't want to. Instead mm. of asking the That's question, right. yeah, they just made the assumption on behalf of everyone. I mean, yeah, everyone might have said, nah, <laughs> leaders, lay me off. That's cool, but ask the question. Give yourself an opportunity to, to ask the question first, you know. That's what I would have done anyway. I think New Zealand rugby would have found themselves in a much better position than what they are now. So, you know, I just want to touch on the how you guys uh, put out of the uh, the American the tour. MLR? Yeah, 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 yes. Because I've been watching it on ESPN. because so I, I love watching because I like I like listening to oh, you know, when you hear someone like an old player. I think who was the. Renee Ranger. Yeah, Martin. that's right. When I when I see that, well, and I, no, it's not there but, but then you look at you. But you <laughs> Ellis, at the, Ellis was there though. Oh. East Coast. Yeah, yeah, New York. <laughs> New York. Yeah, he's yeah. in New York. Yeah. So I watch that. And I'm like, man, I love hearing old play. You know, and I'm like, oh, this is kind of like the Super League now, where everyone just goes there to retire, to retire, retire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, how, how come you guys pulled out of that deal? I know I listened to it on uh, Stacey's <laughs> one. Yeah. But I, I just want people to, you know, that. Yeah. Just listen to it now because, I mean, you said, like you said, you've had, you've got the money, you've got the structure and that. Yeah. yeah. It really came down to uh, the investment wasn't right. Um, there were a few things, there were a few dodgy things, which for legal reasons I can't talk about because that's my agreement with the MLR. But um, at the end of the day, the MLR wanted $10 million US up, up front um, to basically pay for the license and they said that that was due February this year so February 2021 um, when they sent the email to say congratulations you're the 14th team they then sent an email saying um, can you pay half of that this week <laughs> <laughs> and that's when the alarm bells rang I was like why would you all of a sudden we'd just been through a three-month um, negotiation period none of that was ever spoken about they didn't they didn't they said no 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 10 million in February you know, and then and then and a guarantee for fifteen million on top. So, to be in the MLA, you need twenty five mil. Like that was the arrangement. Um, so yeah, so for them to all of a sudden, after they had made the announcement that we were in, to then say, can you pay half of it now? That raised alarm bells. And so we did a little bit of research, and what we found out was that the MLA was in twenty million dollars debt. And what we also found out was that Chicago was also being pitched to. So we weren't exclusive we were we were told that we were an exclusive group and that we were only the group that they were working with they were also working with another group um and so what we ended up doing was saying no and what the mlr did was they went and posted this alert like this massive alert on their facebook page and saying that um kanaloa had missed the time frame or something and so then we got on to social media and said actually this is what really happened and it just became a big 
big storm. Um, so we retracted a whole bunch of stuff just to sort of save face. And we just walked away, basically. Yeah. So that's actually what really happened. That's awesome because, I mean, I mean, like, for you to follow, it's not gut feeling, but just to know yeah, it was when, it doesn't, when it doesn't feel right. It was, it was white or Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, we, we knew there was something, I knew there was something wrong. Um, couldn't put my finger on it. But as soon as we saw the documents to prove, okay, what they're trying to do is basically a giant Ponzi scheme. They were bringing in new franchises to put money in so that they could stay afloat and then the following year maybe expand again, bring in oh, more wow. investment. Yeah. So if you think about it right right now, 13 teams, with us that would have been 14 teams. With our $10 million investment, they would have come, they were in $20 million debt that would have brought them up to 10 mil debt. Then the following year they would have expanded again Two more teams, so another 20 mil. So they would have got themselves out of a bit of a hole. So what they've done is they've gone ahead this year and started in a, you know, negative 20 balance. Um, and I don't know how well they've done with COVID and all that stuff, but we'll see what happens. Do you, do you think there is a future there? Because, I mean, everyone always talks, you know, there's always that big argument, you know, man, if America gets into the, gets into rugby, you know, because there's millions of people there, you know, the you know the athletes over there, you know I I think you kind of get an example of how well they kind of went in the sevens and that. Is there like you know people always talk about potential? Do you think with the way they're going, that they they're going to tap into that that market or? Um, no, but I can tell you, and you you be the first person I'm telling. Um, we if we don't get super rugby license, then we're going to look at entering the NRFL. So the NRFL is a new franchise. Owned by the NFL mm. and Rock Nation, so they pitched to us halfway through our pledge to the MLR. We had told them at the time that we were already in negotiations with the MLR, um, so we can talk, but we can't really do anything about it. Um, and that relationship stayed afloat. So everybody thinks we still got this. Like if you, if, if there's no super, there's nothing. But if there's there's you know super la linga, um, you know. So there's the you know South American module. There's Japan. Um, and now, yeah, now you guys See know that? the secret. There's, <laughs> there's the NRFL that's, as well. Scott's always talking about trying to get exclusive. That, that's an exclusive there. <laughs> there you camera. go. So the NRFL, um, like I said, is it's owned by the NFL and Rock Nation, and it's basically the super-pumped version of the MRL. So there's always going to be someone bigger and more money, you know, more marketing expertise. If you look at the NFL, you know, oh. they are a powerhouse when it comes say, to money. You're not, they're not going to be Marketing. $20 million. Dollars a year. <laughs> well, they're not, yeah, they're, they're, for they'll starters. They'll be up above $20 billion, yeah. Like that, so, yeah. yeah, so, um, so yeah, like I said, like everyone keeps saying, oh, well, what if you don't get a super, super rugby license? It's like, well, man, we've been doing this for 16 years. We can either go back to just doing holiday programs for another year and then restart up again next year and go for another super rugby license application or we'll just look abroad. What what a you know that that's really um, what an awesome attitude to have because you know a lot of people when they hit a they hit a wall they go oh that's you know well no, that's you, just keep going, uh, you know you know but to always ha you know the one thing about being a successful person or business is is always knowing like having a, a plan B or plan B C D or E and and to hear that you guys have already you know this isn't the be all end all you know other yeah. people would have just thought oh well this was all we've always aspired to be. A super team, no, we've just aspired to be a successful franchise. Uh, Pacifica, yeah. you know, Māori Pacifica owned right. and operated. That's right. That's actually, that's what we're trying to achieve. Mm. Yeah. I like it doesn't you guys, matter what league. I like you guys in the MLL. 
MLR because <laughs> if you think about the lifestyle. MRL, I think I said MRL. Yeah, MLR. MLR. Because if you think about, if you guys are based in Hawaii, think about that kind of lifestyle. Yeah. Players will have. So Hawaii was always supposed to be the mm. the, the the goal. And um, I was just saying, um, we got an email from Aloha Stadium this year. So, wow. Uh, this week, sorry, and Monday. So, you know, that those discussions are still being had. And if it means we we forfeit the South Auckland setup altogether and we just go back up to Hawaii and just carry on up there, then we do that. I mean, you know, the Hawaii thing, and when you said um, Aloha, well, you know, because that's where they have the Pro Bowl every year. Yeah. Man, and so I see it, you know, you watch all the games and, and you see how it's set up and how awesome it is. The one thing about being based in Hawaii is because you've got every Pacific Islander there. Yeah. And so you've already got guaranteed packed houses because everyone on the island knows. Everyone, will, whether they haven't played rugby, but they know what rugby is or they've played it, you know, coming from American Samoa, yeah. Tonga, Fiji and all that. So The hardest part of walking away from the MLR was the community over there because they had bought into it and they really want it. And they've been wanting, I, I had I had coaches from local coaches ringing me in tears because they said this has been needed for so long. Um, but, you know, we, we had some really horrible experiences with, with people like Senator Wakai and, and people who were just, just bagging on us and created rumors that went global. Um, but the good thing about it is that, you know, we still have those relationships with the key organisations that you need to. And like I said, if this whole thing, 30th of June is all we're waiting for. So 30th of June, if Moana Pacifica and the Drua um, are successful and they raise the funds and they go ahead, great, we'll look elsewhere. If they don't, then we'll go back to New Zealand rugby because the last thing we want is for New Zealand rugby to be able to say, we gave Pacifica a chance. They couldn't do it. Go away. And we're going to bring in China Lions or you know, um, Singapore Dragons or, you know, money from other organisations and cultures because that's not fair because we, we did, we did have everything in line and we did have our ducks in a row. I get that all the time on social media. People always mock me. Oh, they didn't have their ducks in a row. I was like, actually, you don't know what we had. But um, but, but no, because I remember when I told you before we came on the mics, like my <laughs> sort of like scenario of what will happen Yeah. when the 30th of June comes and yeah. for some reason one of Pacifica doesn't have the money. I said to you, like, you know what I think is going to happen? I think New Zealand Rome is going to bail them out. And you know what? They'll keep it quiet. You know why they'll keep it quiet? Because of the Silver Lake deal and all these other deals happening. The public doesn't want to know about any bailouts when, nah. you know, all these deals are happening. Yeah. So, so, think- so Silver Lake have always had an interest in investing in a Pacifica team. I know that because New Zealand Rugby tried to get PwC, who are our brokers, for the Pacifica team, New Ze- um, for Kanaloa Pacifica. So they had PricewaterhouseCoopers um, draft up an NDA to send to their investors because Silver Lake wanted to invest into our company. So I know that. I knew that for a fact. I knew that a long time ago. Um, New Zealand Rugby actually tried to get us to provide, to send, they wanted us to send them a business model so that they could send it off to Silver Lake. And I said, oh, why is that? Oh, because the Blues and the Chiefs, we want to get some shares on the Blues and the Chiefs sold as well. So we'll do this as a group thing. So that's when I, I mean, there was so much that happened in in the negotiation phase of New Zealand rugby that just went, oh my gosh, these guys, you know, they really just don't get that I'm watching everything they're doing and I'm noting it all down and I can see the systemic racism and I can see the, you know, the the way that they think that they can just pull wool over our eyes. 
Um, so, you know, it was a really tough discussion. I had to tell them, no, sorry, you won't be getting any of our stuff. Um, what we'll do is we'll get our PwC managers to actually do all that for you. And that's when they kind of had, well, oh, oh, no, it's okay. <laughs> but, you know, like the money's the money from Silver Lake was always there for Pacifica. So you could be right. New Zealand Rugby might invest in one of Pacifica themselves, but keep it real low key. Because if they do it in a way, if they don't do it, quietly then the grassroots community are going to kick up a big stink because it's taking money from them i only said that because of the publicity there is now yeah they've got the ads on yeah social media and all yeah. that so yeah. it's like oh yeah it's gonna happen yeah yeah so they've also been advertising for coaches and all that stuff um don't forget they have got investment from world rugby and from sky so you know because i know the ins and outs They've got enough money to market. They've got enough money to put on a good show to promote that they're doing well. But what's going to happen is when they recruit their players and they have to start paying their players, that's when you're going to see whether or not they stay afloat or not. Because it's going to cost about ten million, six to ten million, just to recruit players back and keep them here. The types of caliber of players that they want. I know that because I did the budget for ours. So just to get out the gate next year to get. Uh, full squad of 38, it's going to cost them 6 to 10 mil. That's not to run and operate the whole franchise. That's on top. You'll need extra, you know. So right now doing the marketing, um, you know, seeking coaches and all that stuff, getting some media time and all that, getting a few T-shirts thrown around here and there, they'll be using their small budget that they have from um, World Rugby and Sky TV to get that up and running. And, um, you know, if they if they do things the way that we had done, with Sky TV, so we had brokered a deal with them to do a, a TV show. Um, then they'll also use that to to build a bit of credibility and presence in the community, which looks like they've got quite a bit of money behind them, but it's, it should be part and parcel of the, the deal that they have with the broadcaster. So if they run the same, so if they run the same business model, you because you're saying that the Blues and the Chiefs, they're all, they're in the hole. <laughs> yeah. So, business yeah. too. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they're not going to succeed, eh, because of, you know, I mean, the Blues, if you, they've got, besides um, the Crusaders, they've got the biggest catchment, you know, they, yeah. you know, Auckland is still the biggest, you know, most most populated city. And they still recruit from out of Auckland. <laughs> I don't want to say that about the Blues, you know. <laughs> but yeah, exactly, yeah. you know, and and you'd think that if there was going to be one team besides the Crusaders, that we're going to have the biggest, because think about it. The Auckland Blues were the original Super Rugby champions, and yeah. and if you look at all the Blues fans, because I'm you know I'm always getting stick from them. They're the most loyal. They, they probably are the most loyal fan base because they've been through so much and they haven't had much su- success in the last. So it's not the money's not in the last few decades. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say anything. But That's right. I'm, <laughs> I'm a Crusaders fan. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, but how come Auckland? How come the Blues can't get it right? You mean, you'd think they'd be selling jerseys. They'll be packing out Eden Park in that, you know, because especially the last two years, they've been on the brink of, you know, of, of, of making some noise in that. So how come these guys can't get it right? It's the same model over and over again. Yeah. So mm, mm. if you look at, I can guarantee you, Moana Pacifico's um, and Drew's, just like everyone else's um, budget, will be their main revenue build will be match day revenue. And that's like nothing. It really is nothing. It's very, very little. Um, and if you go by the, you know, the test that they played against the New Zealand Māoris, 
you know, they they didn't even pack out a quarter of the stadium. So, you know, if you're going to have match day revenue as your as your key income, um, then you're always going to fail. Um, the other thing that they're trying to achieve is, um, you know, c- community grants and, you know, government grants like Pacific Reset Funds and things like that. But that, again, that's only like you're, you're not even hitting millions there. You know, you need major sponsors. And the one thing that we have, and, and you also need another revenue, which is what we have, completely separate revenue stream. Um, but with sponsors, the one thing we had with our boys who backed us for the Kanaloa All Blacks, the ones who were on our board, um, each of them already had an existing major relationship with a key sponsor, you know, sponsors that New Zealand rugby don't even have. So unless they're able to generate a great network with major sponsors like Nike, um, you know, Take Her, um, Lamborghini, Unless they're actually able to network those those relationships with key sponsors like that, they're not going to get the revenue that they need through the through the 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 most common um, revenue income for uh, for a company like them. So match day revenue and sponsorship are the two big things. The other thing too is um, we were talking about owning our own um, stadium. So we had um, an ex FIFA player who had offered to build a stadium in South Auckland. For us, <laughs> you know, like this is the stuff we were talking about. No one knows because it was all, you know, behind closed doors and it was part of our application to New Zealand Rugby. New Zealand Rugby weren't interested. Why? Because they want to be the person that owns that stadium. They'd rather um, cut us out and get access to whoever it was that was going to fund that stadium. I'll tell you exactly. Okay, so one of our investor groups that we were pitching to, New Zealand Rugby found out who it was and they made an approach. Now that's that's how doggy dog this industry is, you know. Um, the the investor turned them down and said, "No, I'm not interested." But that was because they didn't have what we had. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I can't wait to name the the FIFA player one day. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you'd be you'd be surprised. He's 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 uh, he's from here. Mm. Yeah, I think um, the other thing is like I, again, I come back to American sports because you they know, own everything. That's right, and and the revenue they make. I mean, they invest a lot because they know they're a capitalist country, so they'll yeah. do anything to get money. They don't care, right? Yeah, they'll they'll make all their universities. They'll make all their students loyal to their team. They have mascots. They have uniforms. They, you know, they build this tribalism thing. They, you know, everybody. That's the key. Everybody loves tribalism. the school they they're in, yeah. and and they make it happen. They make That's it happen right. with the sports teams they got. You know they they have they have the media do the drama because there has to be drama. Yeah, you have to hate on someone. Yeah, you know you got to hate on the next school. You know you got to you got to you got to create these these rivalries. Yeah, and they do it they do it because they know people can spend money. Yep, on team they, team they support. Yeah, and that's why you look at and merchandise. Yeah, merchandise, and you, you see it when you look at these all, all these college games with even football. Yeah, man, those stadiums are packed. Yeah, more than more than a Blues game. For example, exactly. More than an All Blacks game. <laughs> and then you get the old guys through yeah. the left school, but they're still loyal to the team because of the mascot, because yeah. of the, you know. Yeah. And then you go to Eden Park and Blues game, there's like, you can probably count how many, you know. Yeah, yeah. no, that's true. Eden Park doesn't even f- fill up. That's true. You know. Okay, so there was a point where ticket sales, okay, I want to share this with you. There was a point where ticket sales were so low at Super Games that New Zealand rugby didn't know what to do. And while I was doing a contract with them for the All Blacks clinics, um, I was approached by um, basically their managerial group 
and they wanted to know what I felt would be the way to bring revenue back, get more people to the stands. And I said, it's really simple. And they said, oh, what's that? And I didn't think they'd want to hear it, but I just said, okay, well, don't laugh, but you just need to open the stands up again at the end of games. And they're like, what? I said, you need to open the field up. Like, when when we were growing up, you could go and you could touch your heroes. You could touch them on the show. You slap their legs if you wanted to. But that moment of of being there with them and having photos with them and shaking their hand, high fiving them was all you needed every week. And you you wanted to go back and see them. Um, and then on top of that, if you can, you know, because I know these boys don't really enjoy this stuff anymore because they're too busy jamming the blooming PlayStation. <laughs> get them back into the schools. Get them to do. Not coaching clinics, but just even just attend assemblies or hand out some, but don't do it like because you have to. Do it because you know these are the kids that pay to come watch you play. So those were my two recommendations to New Zealand Rugby to management level. Two weeks later, that's what they did. No credibility to me whatsoever, but I knew in my heart, I told my husband exactly what had happened at work that day. Um, I was down in Wellington at the time. So I was down at New Zealand Rugby at Wellington. So I usually work out at the Auckland office when I was there. Um, so I told my husband so that he knew. And um, yeah, then it happened. And we were just sitting there, we just had a little quiet, quiet smile and <laughs> saying, there you go, you know. An example of real basic intuition and community that they just couldn't see. And they didn't see that it would be beneficial. Um, and then the introduction of Te Reo Māori and um, you know your your indigenous tongue in in um, interviews. Yeah, yeah, you know that's what I've noticed when they're interviewing uh, interviewing Tana and you've yeah. got Alama and all that, you know. Yeah. And then when Patrick Tupolotu came out after one of his uh, after a win, yeah, after a blues win, <laughs> and when he, he he opened up and he started for Slow and I went, there it is. Yeah. You know, because you're yeah. gonna get. You're gonna get those old, old rednecks gonna go, oh, can't speak English, mate. You know, you know, or go back to your, you know, you're gonna get those, but but you're gonna get a whole. You're gonna lot get a, of exactly else. because yeah. especially the the uh, the pride. culture, the climate that it's we're in. It's tribalism. Yeah. it's pride. It's mm. community. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, you know, just going back to that story, how you said um, going back into the schools. I remember when I was young at primary school. Um, so we had an Auckland player uh, come in, and he came with the referee shield. Yeah, yeah, and 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 we and because you'd only you'd only heard about it, you know, yeah. seen it, and this is when Auckland was. I'm aging myself, but Terry this, Wright, yeah, there was yeah, a Terry Wright, they, 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 yeah, 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 exactly, you know, <laughs> John and, Kill and, they and came, Terry Wright, they came out, they came, and you know, and they said, oh, "Come up and touch it," yeah, you know? and we went, "What?" You yeah. know, so we all stood in a line, you yeah. know, and you pretend to hold it, you know, like everyone else does it, yeah, exactly, and touch them and, and finish. And then after that, they said, "Okay, we give we give you," you know, they came and they gave us tickets to the next, you know, I think they were playing like North Canterbury or Buller or something, yeah. you know, all those easy, you know, the midweek games or yeah. you know after school. And I remember thinking, far out, you know, that's, I was like, wow, this is amazing. I saw the rabbit yeah. this year, man. I, and I then saw you wanted to go to the game. That's right. Exactly. Because you had a, an experience, a right. an genuine interaction. interaction. Yeah. And, yeah. That, and, that's, and that stopped. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. And yeah. now I, and, and what, and that suggestion you made, I was just sitting there, I was like, he's absolutely right. Yeah. Because that's what kids want. It was really that simple. Mm. And, and then all of a sudden they had record sales. And I just sat there laughing, going, you would have had record sales for the last ten years if you had not played. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and um, it re and then I revisited the fact that we had started the you know the Jerome Kaino camps and now holiday programs with rugby all stars. 
back in 2004. You know, I'm sitting here going, imagine if they'd actually listened to me and done this nationwide, you know, they'd have a generation of rugby players. But what happened was they didn't give me a job in, in, in rugby, so I went to basketball, and now they have a generation of basketball. <laughs> Basketballers. Yeah. You, <laughs> you know, know. Innovation, that's all it is. You know, going back to, to so we had um, Tim Provice on, and he was talking about New Zealand basketball. The New Zealand Basketball Federation. And <laughs> yeah. Is this a proper, it's a proper term? New Zealand Basketball Association. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Too much WWF on that one. The federation. Yeah. But was, I'm sure that's the, oh, the IBF. Or, 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 or. <laughs> anyway, and he was talking about... It is about, Federation of Basketball International yeah, Federation. Yeah, FIBA. FIBA. <laughs> yep. But he was talking to us about how far um, they've fallen. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I saw Lindsay Tate recently put up yeah. something... <laughs> and you know, because I didn't know how bad it was, but it's when I read, when he I read my, it, he was my—he was—I—I used to be his boss. Yeah, yeah. I was CEO, and we were all about expanding. And for two years, um, for three years, I was there. Sorry, um, but for the first two years, we went from one thousand members to thirty thousand members in eighteen months, and that was community engagement. Um, and so my strategy was that we we would have to spend money obviously, to make money. So we came in at a loss of uh, about 107K the first year, 127K the second year. And, like, other people look at that and go, oh, that's bad, you you know, you're running at a loss. And I'm just like, no, actually, if you look at pound for pound, we went from 1,000 members to 30,000 members. So if you're looking at how much money we were investing, we were basically $60 per person versus rugby, who spent about 500 per person. So pound for pound, business sense, we were doing good. Um, but the problem was that I had a board that... Um, and their board's still there, unfortunately. Yeah, and that's the people that Lindsay's really having trouble with. Um, when I developed my further strategy for another three years and I presented it to the board, um, we talked about how the clubs need to be completely independently run, community community run, you know, so a community champion or a group of people. Um, they can generate their own revenue. They can bring in their own sponsors and trust grant funds and all that stuff but what we would do is we provide the centralized stuff so we help them with resources and equipment etc um and venue hire all those things um and my board just said no we want to own those clubs the money needs to be coming into absl and then out and that really did my head in because i had spent that whole time creating relationships with these community groups and teaching them how to be independent um, as we do in community. So very ta'al, you know, very much all of us and collective. Um, and then the other thing that I pitched to the board was that we would um, also want to start semi-professionalism with our women's team. So I'd come in, we didn't have a premier women's basketball team. Um, so I started a, the Auckland Dream. We brought in a GM who volunteered. He's amazing. His name's Bevan. I had to say it. Um, and we came third in the first year we won the championship in our second year. So in our second year, we'd gone from, um, you know, basically having nothing to having a championship team. Um, but in order to make that team a championship team, I was bringing girls over from Australia. So the girls were playing in the boomers and the teams over in Aussie on Saturdays or whatever weekdays. And on the days that they weren't playing and there was no clash, I'd fly them here and they'd play for my team. So that's how we won. It was a very strategic championship strategy to win and we also built credibility amongst all the girls teams in the in the region you know the Epsom girls Auckland girls McLean's all that stuff we had a, um, a girls program 
to teach them. And then we also did an academy. So we got a, um, a diploma of basketball running at MIT. So all of this went into this program, right? So I put that before the board and I said, let's go semi-pro. Let's champion pro, semi-pro women's sport. And I literally got the, and, and I don't mind saying this out public now because it did hurt me. Um, I had my chairman scoff. <laughs> no, that won't happen. It, you've right. got to be, you know, the, the, the Pirates, the Auckland Pirates, which was the men's professional team back in the days, struggled struggled to stay afloat. What makes you think a female team? And and that, that was enough. For me, it was like, yeah, nah. So I checked out then, basically, um, and I ended up resigning and... It actually didn't go down very well. I got I got put on garden leave for three months or two months or something like that. So I wasn't able to talk to anyone in the – I wasn't able to talk to my staff, wasn't able to talk to um, anyone in the community that had affiliations with ABSL. Um, and the reason why is because the chairman and a board member in particular um, felt that I was hiding stuff or I was trying to – either I was hiding stuff or I was trying to replicate what I had done and do it independently on my own. So – it was a very horrible end to a really cool time that I had at ABSL. But this is the result, you, you know, yeah. of that type of I'm going to own everything mentality and, and um, approach. All of those um, coaches, Lindsay, George, PJ, uh, Peter Josephs, um, I think there's a couple of others as well, um, Jalal, they were all working for me and they were all in their independent spaces running their programs. Um, when COVID happened... ABSL had $400,000 in the bank at, at, with one of their stakeholders, Basketball Auckland. They let them go. And when they brought them back after COVID kind of subsided, they said, if you work for us, you have to volunteer. And they just said, nah. So these guys have now gone off and they've started their own um, ACB. Um, I'm so proud of them because they're just following their hearts and their passions. They're doing it for the kids. Um, yeah, so that's actually what happened. It's horrible. Horrible. And New Zealand basketball have done nothing about it. That's, that's the thing. Like, you always hear about um, New Zealand basketball. They just, you know, you know the NZRFU, they should actually be worried about basketball. Because if you look at all the comps, oh, yeah. everyone's playing basketball now. Like, we cover the Pacific Nations down here at um, Trust Stadium. And just the amount of kids that were there. And, like, because we, we, our first, like, my, my first love was basketball, you know, and I love it. And I know that it's easier to go. Go go to play play on a court somewhere. Then go go play rugby. You know, because you can basketball. You can play outside. You can play inside. And that, and you can see the numbers as well. And there's a bit more exposure. And if you you know, there's the, it's it's a fact that the amount of people playing rugby rugby league and it, it's it's um they're dwindling the numbers. Eh? Yeah. So we did actually overtake rugby. We we were below netball and that was it. So we used to be when I first started. We were behind netball, rugby, football, no, netball, football, rugby, and rugby league. And then in my 18 months there, we went to second. And and we also went to fastest growing sport in New Zealand. And like, I don't take all credit for it. There was obviously um, Stephen Adams as well. <laughs> and there was the breakers who were doing well. So it was a combination of things. But you know, when you, when you can actually have proof on paper that says, we had 1,000 members in one audit. And then in my last audit, there were 30,000 members that and that was a third of the population of all basketball participants nationwide. So New Zealand basketball, um, they um, had 90,000 registered members that year, and we were a third of those members. Wow. Yeah, that's how, that's how 
how quickly you can grow and expand. So to me, yeah, um, you know, we, we opened up a, a fund of $120 million of Auckland Council grants when I was there. We negotiated this um, way to get the mayor to actually open up a, a sport and recreation fund, and that was to build or expand on club facilities so that there was room to cater for sport, for, for more sport. Because when I started, we were already 40 courts, 40, 40, 40 courts short of basketball, for basketball to, to match the capacity. So if you can imagine, we were already 40 short with just 1,000 members. By the time we had done what we did, 900% increase, um, we needed a hell of a lot more. Um, so originally the mayor had not put aside any money in his 10-year budget for Sport and Rec. Um, by the end of this big negotiation and forum that we had pushed um, with Sport Auckland and with um, Active, um, we were able to get $120 million. And of that, $60 million was supposed to go into a big hub, like a big multi-purpose basketball court stadium, and the other $60 million was supposed to go into like canopies and extensions of buildings and things like that, or resurfacing of old courts. Um, but when I resigned, basically what happened was no one was there to pick up that piece of work, and I believe nobody knows how to access it. So <laughs> it's sad. Get the key back. Oh, it's sad. I mean, the money probably still there. I know. I know a couple of people who would have who would have um, accessed the fund um, to do a little bit of work. But the truth is, there's still a lot of money in that pot that could be used for expansion. But you know, that's what happens when when you have um, that Western mindset you know and you got to own everything and you got to do it this way instead of hey let's just clip the ticket here and let everybody else grow i, I didn't know that about um all the franchises around um new zealand being owned you know centralized by the by new zealand basketball because you know when you watch all these teams the nelson giants the one or two jets and that you look at the stadiums they're always packed out mm. so i'm thinking oh man it's, it must be really good because the money must be going back into the club but it looks like it's are they going back and then it's going to head back up to the is a Basketball Association or? So it's, oh, sorry, it's just Auckland that has this. Oh, sorry, okay. Um, Capital also tried in Wellington. There were the Porirors, there were three different um, associations. So 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 New Zealand Basketball is a funny little setup. Um, they have 36 associations across New Zealand and some of them are all in the same area, so like three or four. So in, in Auckland... There's counties, Auckland, Waitakere, and there's also North Harbour. North Harbour is a standalone association, whereas counties, Waitakere, and Basketball Auckland amalgamated under ABSL. So that sorry, so that's where the we are oh, the yes. only yeah, yeah, region sorry. that's centralised. Yeah. Um, and in New Zealand basketball's defence, they don't get any investment from Sport New Zealand. Yeah, I, that's the one thing I. <laughs> I do feel for yeah. them. Then they don't get money from the bottom up. They don't get money from the top down. So they are a poor administrative organisation. Uh, the money that they do raise from New Zealand basketball camps um, and trials <laughs> and anything that they run, which has New Zealand basketball all over it, it's what feeds their their top teams. Um, but I agree with Lindsay. It's too expensive. When I was at ABSL, we implemented uh, Pound the Rockathon, and it was the old school um, theory of everybody gets a form and you have 50 lines and you go out and you find someone to sponsor you ten bucks each, and that's your school, that's your basketball fees paid for, you know. So prior to me, there was no such thing as that, 
you know, kids weren't expected to go out and raise money to pay for their own fees. And I'm sitting here going, man, these parents are silly if they're just going to keep forking out mm, hundreds of dollars. Money, eh? You've got kids that can raise money. Um, so we did Pound the Rockathon in my final year. It was a Christmas event. Every kid, every rep player was given a form. They were expected to fill it out and come with the cash and put it into their into the bank so that it paid for their, for their um, basketball fees for the rep season. Um, and 85% of them did it. The other the other kids were pretty much kids that whose parents were happy to pay for it themselves, you know. And you're going to get those, and that's cool. Um, so effectively what we were introducing was free fees. You know, so I mean, yes, you're raising those fees, but it wasn't coming out of your back pocket, you know. Um, and I got criticised for that. Yeah, I got well, criticised. You know, one of the things <laughs> I remember Stephen Adams speaking up about was, you know, the fact that uh, the kids have to pay their own way to yeah. to go to these tournaments like yeah. overseas and stuff and and he was saying like him he couldn't afford it no, but he had, no he had people to help him yeah but he knows that there's a lot of kids out there yeah that can't afford it yeah even now and that's why the strategy for club so when I came on to ABSL we introduced the club strategy right so before me there was um, school and reps so association so in rugby context, it was school and union. Um, so I introduced this whole level of club basketball, and that's why we set up the 30 clubs Auckland-wide, so that each of the clubs could then develop locally and then the best of those clubs go play reps, right? And so the strategy f moving forward was that we had one fee which covered you for everything, school, school club and reps. And you did that through fundraising rather than what it is, unfortunately, it stayed the way it was that they had it. When I left, they didn't implement it. Um, so what it is, you pay when you do junior basketball at primary level. You also pay if you go and play at a club or whatever. And you also pay if you join the rep team. And then you also pay for any excursions that a rep team does as well. So say a team wants to go to Hoop Nations, which is the popular basketball tournament down Toronto. Yep, been to that. Um, been yeah. to it. You know, I was going to say... They have to pay for that on yeah, top as well. Yeah. So that's why Lindsay was talking about everything coming up to like 12 grand. Some people, if they make New Zealand, they've got to pay for their trip to Russia or China or Argentina. It's all, it's all self-funded. <laughs> yeah, pretty sad. How do you think basketball as a whole are going to get the funding from, you know, Spark and all these um, other... Sponsors. Sponsored. Because, I mean, like you're, like you're, you went out there, you, you, you managed to get the mayor to open up that fund, which no one can touch now. <laughs> yeah. So it happens when you don't look after yeah, That's people. right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's... You can't ride on other people's hard work. You know, the thing is, like, the numbers are there to show that basketball is a developing... Well, is pretty much there. It's, it's just on the yeah. cusp. You know, there's got to be a tipping point at, at, at some stage. How, how can we get these guys to it's open up their eyes? Yeah. So when I was at ABSL, I pitched to Mazda. All right, it was like my first big pitch to a sponsor for basketball. And I knew I had a solid product because I had grown the game from 1,000 to 30,000, right? So I knew I had numbers and data. Um, and I had beautiful visuals of all the kids that are now playing and the adults that are now playing in the adult leagues, you know, so I had a really good product. I pitched to the general manager of um, Mazda and to also the their, their main marketing guy, and they straight turned me down. And 
that was cool. It was an experience. I had done millions of sponsorship pitches before, obviously, since I was 11. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But this one was so important to me because I had pitched products that I knew could sell. This was the first time that I had a new product that I knew people didn't know yet. The Without going into anything um, private, um, they were already sponsoring the Warriors. And I got some feedback around why they did that. And I was like, no, that's cool. That's cool. Um, obviously, I resigned. I've been away for almost a couple of years now. Um, guess who their major sponsor oh, is now? Huh. Mazda. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so their ABSL's community development team now have five Mazda cars. And they drive around in Mazda cars and... Like it was just one of those moments again, you know, like when I when I saw all the kids running on the field after a super game, I just went, I did that, you know. And and I I mean that's a little bit myself, but I think when you put a lot of effort into something and you know it works, and no one believes you that it's gonna work, to see it actually happen, choice, yeah. yeah, it was just like, man, I did that, yeah, I, I, I planted that yeah, seed, I planted that seed, yeah. and it may have taken Mazda a couple of years to really embrace the growth of the game and to believe it. But if I hadn't planted that seed then, they wouldn't have looked at all, you know. And the girls' team is uh, sponsored as well. Um, it wasn't me. I didn't reach out to Echo, but they're fully sponsored. You know, so it's possible. You just got to gotta build it and believe in it. And uh, sponsors do come. We we had a sponsor for Kanaloa pitching at $100 million. Damn. And I'm not afraid to say that because New Zealand Rugby, they, they missed out on a really big thing there. $100 million if I could get the super license when when it was offered, sure. they were prepared to sponsor the team a hundred million dollars, and we were going to donate most of that back to the islands. You know, so this is I'm talking about a you know thirty million dollar stadium, a hundred million dollar sponsorship with a telco. Yeah, that's on top of the the money that we had just to start the franchise. You know, that's a it's a big industry. How do you keep yourself? Little head when you're dealing with all these numbers, you know you're dealing. Oh, yeah. with, I, I struggle trying to um, pay my bills and trying to figure out do I do I have enough to buy this coffee or, and that's, you're you're juggling. That's probably, that's probably how I do it. <laughs> yeah. I keep I keep myself grounded by mm. um, keeping myself in that space. Um, I don't let anything get to my head. So to be fair, um, I am dyslexic, um, so I don't actually look at numbers like other people do. So um, a million is like a dollar for me. I don't, it, it means it means nothing to me. It's, um, you know, you could be talking to me about a $30,000 car or a $3 million car. To me, it's just the car. So I think that's kind of one of my disabilities actually helps me to manage money really well because it doesn't get to my ears right. that way that other people do. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, we just talked about a $100 million deal. That meant nothing to me. Yeah, yeah exactly. I know. You know a lot it of people, can, it, can, it can be a weight yeah. because there's, there's so much that you're going to have to do for you that you have to go back to them and, and be accountable for that kind of stuff. And yeah. it just seems like a pretty daunting thing. Because it sounds like you're pretty much doing most of that stuff by yourself, though, you know. Yeah, um, I think because I, I know I, I have the skill set. Mm. It's... <laughs> nothing. When people, when people ask me how do I broker deals like that, mm. if you came along on a ride with me, you wouldn't believe I was working. You know, it, it sometimes things just happen. Like I was literally on Waiheke um, and I was driving down a driveway to go to, um, there's a there's a park over there, Onitangi Sports Field, and there's this thing that they call the fire track and it's just a big track goes up the back. That's the one um, that Iranian that done on that rugby? Yes. Yep. Hey, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah, okay, so because yeah. I know the island really well, right? Lived there, right? 
so I know how to get to the top instead of having to run up the hill. <laughs> so I drove to the top and I wait at the top. So I was just driving through there and as I was coming out, this particular person was going in and I stopped and he stopped because we were there was only one road and I didn't want to be the guy that had to get off. <laughs> so I reversed back. Next minute, we're having a random chat because he sees the Ponsonby Rugby Club logo on my son's jacket. That's how it happened. And just like that, we'd gone from just meeting a random person to being introduced to a $100 million sponsor. You know? So things sometimes just happen. And then you have other ones like the Mazda deal, where I put a whole lot of effort into a great presentation, I pitched it, and, you know, the traditional way of doing it. So, yeah, sometimes fate. It just, it happens, you know, and you got to move with it. You have to, you actually have to jump on it because if you don't, I, that's where that, that, oh, this is a long, big deal. Should I do it? Should I not? You just got to go roll with it because you're, you're just going to get a yes or a no. Yeah. You know when you, because um, you, you said earlier, like, you said, like, you know, these visions, they come to you and that. <laughs> they, you know, like, like, and that's awesome, you know, because, you know, some people, they have, you know, they get, you know, they, they say it's an epiphany or, you know, there's a vision mm-hmm. and you see the vision. What makes you act on it? Because, you know, some you might get one and you go, should I act on that one? Or is this really a sign or is this God telling me? Or Yeah, okay. Um, This probably goes back to a story that I've shared before. Um, I ended up in Tahiti um, on a little island called Raiatea, which is a small island, <laughs> and... I didn't know my I, I didn't know my cultural upbringing. I didn't I didn't know my Maori background or my Samoan background at all when I went there. It was just many years ago now um, on a rugby tour, and I walked onto the marae with my team. And it's not a like you don't see a marae; you just see rocks because it's just the remnants of what used to be. I walked onto the land and I just started crying, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, what's wrong with me?" Um, and then my coach came up and said, it's okay, sis, it's just your tupuna, it's just your, your ancestors. And I'm like, you know, he knows, he knows I was like, whatever, coach. Um, and then I, later on that day, ended up sitting in a group with young people and they were blowing the conch. And I'd never done it before and I didn't know what I was doing. They gave it to me and I put it to my lips and it just, and I was like, wow, this is fun. And they were like, their eyes were like, I could tell they were shocked. And I thought it was just because I was a female. Um, but then they said, oh, very hard. And they were all speaking French. <laughs> very hard, very hard. And I was like, oh. And then they showed me how to change the notes by putting my hand in the conch. And so I was making music, right? And I thought it was just cool. It must be easy. Then my coach like grabbed it off me and gave it back to the boys. said, it's not for girls. Come over here. Um, but then um, he said, you know, it's actually really hard to play the conch, so. Have you played it before? Do you play an instrument? I'm like, oh, I play violin. So that another thing. And then like later on, um, it was, it was. I thought it was the same day, but it might have been a couple of days later. But I ended up at this blowhole, and it's a very famous blowhole. Um, and there's a landing just off the roads. It's all been redeveloped now because it was so dangerous. But at the time, we didn't know it was dangerous. There was this platform, um, and we had a, a local guide, a French man. And we walked down onto this landing to take a photo and we had our backs to the water because it was calm as, like nothing. And the girl in my team went to take a photo of us and all I saw was her drop her camera and her mouth just 
And then she turned and ran up the hill. And as I looked back, this wave, freak wave came, took out the French guide. He was underwater. I didn't know where he was. And I'm, I was thankfully still standing. So I was just reaching down. I ended up grabbing what I thought was his hand, but it was his ankle. And we managed to get out. Long story short, what I found out was that um, my tupuna or my ancestors had visited me and through Tangaroa, which is God of the Sea, um, had blessed me with this gift of foresight. <laughs> you know, so from that day on, I listened to everything I felt and I believed any vision that I had could come true. Um, and so as I've gone along this journey of self-discovery with my culture, with Māori, Samoa and Ireland, there's some freaky Ireland background too, um, I've come to just embrace the fact that I do see things. Um, if you listen to all the stories of my 25th great-grandfather is Kupe, the great navigator from Hawaii who came here and founded Aotearoa, <laughs> that guy. Now he's actually my lineage, direct line. Um, and he was a seer. So he foresaw the whole, you know, coming to Aotearoa and, and finding this beautiful land. So once you start um, hearing your history and knowing your your tupuna and everything about you, I think it just becomes easier to just say, yeah, it might sound crazy to everyone else, but it's not crazy that's, to me. That's, that's the one thing, you know, like um, a lot of people would be, you know, skeptical or just like, no, you know, don't. Oh, yeah, know, so people roll their eyes at me all yeah. the time. But, you know, it's, if you're following your truth or, or your, you know, what you, your spiritual calling in that, you know, nothing's going to stop you. Because, you mean, you talked about, People say chance, but it's not chance that all these meetings, you know, like you said. Fate. You, yeah, yeah, it's fate. <laughs> well, you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah. And all these other little things, they're put there to, 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 to they're either going to be blessings or lessons. Eh? Yeah. So it's, a, it's, a, it's amazing how every, you've turned every little thing that could have been a, like a, a nothing. A nothing. Or, 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 I could or, have or just you've, you've gone, gone around, around them. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, you've, you've either gone around them or you've gone through them. So yeah. that's. Yeah. You know, that's amazing. And that's, that's why I was, you know, because when you said it before, I was like, you know, to, to, to utilize or just to, 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 to act on those visions is, 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 is a lot of things that people don't do. You know, you know, there's something that comes here and you go, no, I couldn't do that. But to, 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 you know, a lot of people do that, you know? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you don't know that. It's, you know, that's, it's either, you know, it's your, 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 your being or your spiritual being saying to you, you can do that, you know. You know that New Zealand Connecticut. Oh, yeah. I don't know. You know, it's yeah. a bit, bit too big. Hundred million dollars, you know. You know. Yeah, and and imposter syndrome. Mm. Definitely, I've seen heaps of people not believe that they could do it. Nah, this this isn't. I can't believe I I can't do that. You know, and once they do it, they still don't believe. Like a good like Selala Mapusua, right? He is the head coach of Samoa. Mm. I know for a fact that he. He struggles with the fact that he's in that role because it's taken him so long to get there and he's worked so hard. And now he's there. He's just like, am I all right for this job? Am I the guy for this job? You know, but he definitely is. He totally is. And I can't wait for him to be a super rugby coach, you know, because of that, because he's so humble enough to think that he doesn't really deserve that role. But he does. He totally does. Is, is that a Pacific Island Maori thing? Yeah, totally is. Because, you know. Totally is. I think it felt like it kind of felt like that when we when we first kind of started the podcast as well. Yeah. You're like, oh, you know, it's going to be, uh, cool, you know. Should then, we be doing this? Mm. Are we allowed? 
And, and my, will, people, my, will people even listen? Yeah, see, that's you know, that was my, you know, that, you know, you couldn't have that fear. But then and this guy's like, who cares? Whether you have one or yeah. 30 or hopefully one one day, 30 million. I'm just saying, yeah. yeah. It is possible. You know, like things grow and they evolve. And the more authentic you are, um, you know, so don't be a fake guy. Every fake guy that I've ever known has it has not been successful. If you are truly authentic and you just stick to what your heart truly believes, um, you know, you'll be surprised at how many people believe in that too and they'll come out of the woodworks. Do you, you think know? that's the collective again? Because yeah. we Because we love and we care. Yeah. And it can, empathy. Yeah. yeah. So it can be it can be put in a way where we think about what other people might think about us because we're close to people, because our family, friends. Yeah. That coming back to that village mentality, we're worried about what they think. Yeah. So we won't go. Absolutely, yeah. especially in our Samoan culture. Mm. Um I mean, I know for a fact people were telling me, Are you worried about what people are gonna say about you because you've called out leaders, like bona fide Pacifica leaders, and you've held them to account for some of their actions. I'm like, no, actually, I think there's not going to be anyone doing that. I think there's going to be a lot more people speaking up and saying, I've experienced that too, you know. And actually, that's what we've had. We've not had anyone badmouth us about the videos that we've released. We've just had a lot of people stand up and say, yeah, that, that has been happening for too long and it's time for us to lead, you know. So there's been a lot more support around um, around whoever goes forward. It needs to be led by Pacifica, you know. So all these things that come up, with the Drua and with Moana Pacifica, people have been holding it, holding people to account. Well, why? Why 80%? Why 20%? Why this? You know? Why a Balangi coach who took, you know, you know, Ireland? All those things are, are people are now have a voice to actually speak up and say, well, she was able to do it. Maybe I can do it too, without offending the world. Mm. That's the thing for me, being a Monosamo supporter. I mean, trying to get us back to the World Cup finals. Back to the quarterfinals, but now nah, back to the finals. Let's, well, you got let's get to the finals. You got a new you know? government now. You'll see things changing in that regard. I was gonna. Yeah, I was that's gonna, gonna be massive. Yeah, if, you know? Dino, Dino, because he is the chairman of the Samoan Rugby and the caretaker. Well, was he still a caretaker prime minister or no comment? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah, yeah. No, um, I mean, if we're talking facts, then yeah, we've got a new, you know, new prime minister. Um. And yes, that means that the union will also come under a whole new restructure of ownership. Um, but what's probably more interesting at the moment with that whole debacle is how they're going to um, roll that out because the the lawyer, Brenda Heatherlatu. I saw her. Yeah, She's, you know, she is also the chair of Oceania Rugby. I didn't know that. First appointed female. Nice. And her husband, uh, George Latu, was the has been on the Oceania board for many years as well, and he was also on the rugby union. What's happened is people, good people like them, with you know really qualified, highly qualified, and motivated people who have made change in their lives, um, have come forward now and they've made changes at all these different hierarchical levels to be able to actually change the game completely. So you got you got someone like Brenda who was um, you know championing the fast party with her legal experience, and is also the chairman of Oceania Rugby. Mate, you wait. 
well, look what this restructure is going to happen. You know, who's going to be in charge of Samoa Rugby Union? We'll now also have, uh, you know, um, Samoan representative as the chairman of Oceania Rugby. Mm. There's going to be a massive shift in that area. And with um, with Peter at Tonga Rugby, he's been there for 10 years. Like People don't really know that about Peter Harding. He's actually been involved with Tonga Rugby for about 10 years. So he's genuinely for the people. Um, and I've spoken to him recently too about, you know, where he's at in regards to Super Rugby and all that stuff. Um, but that's a, they've had a whole overhaul as well. Completely new board, blah blah mm. blah. Um, you know, the previous CEO was cut, was was thrown out, and the new CEO come in, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so you know, you're gonna there's a big shift happening in the Pacifica rugby realm. Fiji's always gonna have that sort of difference of opinion as well. You know, they they've always been quite self sustaining. So I'm really excited about next year to see mm. what the restructures of Tonga. Samoa look like how Fiji plays alongside them because at the moment Fiji's playing on their own. I know that World Rugby's funding them and they're getting some money from Sky TV, so they're set, you know. Um, and then you've also got Cook Islands, the Cook Islands Rugby Union are coming up as well, and they've got a whole new board, some young, fresh talent, um, very innovative people in that space. So it'll be really interesting to see how Oceania Rugby performs at the next World World Cup because of that. Purely because of the administration administration support around them. So, so this one, you know, this one change of Kuilapa going mm-hmm. is going to change the whole yeah. face of of uh, Pacific Island rugby. How amazing the, is that? Open the floodgates. No, it because like. it feels like it's doing the same for Samoa as in mm-hmm. Samoa in general. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a huge shift, and I think because I foresaw a lot of that when New Zealand Rugby gave us the letter saying that the Tonga government and Samoa government have approved Moana Pacifica as the preferred, um, that was just a random, like, so out of the ballpark, like it had nothing to do with the tender application. But I sat there and I went, you know what, New Zealand Rugby are using this excuse as a way to cut us up, but it will come round. Just just give 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 God time. It'll work itself out, and it is. It's slowly working itself out now because those two governments are now almost abolished. You know, it sounds very promising, and especially because there's there's many factors that stop Manusau more being a force again in the World Cup. You know, one of them is the eligibility rules. Yeah. Another one is the clubs in the Northern Hemisphere and the, the big money contracts they got over there. Yeah. New Zealand rugby, I'll, I'll throw them, I throw them in there too with the change of government and. And the you know the new players on the yeah that kind of stuff that that's probably one of the factors gone might be gone in a few years time. Oh. Yeah, I think it's going to take about eighteen months for that shift to completely mm-hmm. like instill itself or put itself in place where it's like I think New Zealand rugby and Australia rugby especially are going to be really worried about the way that it will evolve. So when, the other fact that I mentioned was the the big money contracts in northern yeah. he- northern hemisphere. If Kanaloa Rugby could be that team yeah. that could compete with that kind of money mm. and pay the mm-hmm. Pacific Island players? Yeah. We, so, okay. We had 46 professional players on a Zoom with us considering playing for us if we got a super. That was high, like high level, you know, players who are currently based in Japan, Europe, some nationally, some in Australia. And they sat there for three hours just listening to what we were talking about, our, our strategy and how we're going to do it. And I can tell you right now, most of those players would have played for free just to prove a point. 
that that's not a lie. <laughs> you know, like I could tell by the by purely the feeling coming through the screen that these players just wanted to play for a Pacifica entity. And so that's why, you know, Moana Pacifica shouldn't have any issues recruiting players. They really should have. that generally they're, want to come back. Honestly, oh, man, there are players who I wanted to bring back straight away purely just because they wanted to get out of the situation they were in because it was COVID, remember? It was right in the middle of COVID. Mm. Um, so they were begging to come home to something. Um, but without a super license, there was no guarantees for anybody, you know, which is sad. But, yeah, the, the players want to play, and they want to play for a Pacifica team. And I think the scariest thing was when I was speaking with Chris Lindrum, who's the professional players manager um, for New Zealand rugby, and he said, um, you know, a uh, player like um, Adi Savia, uh, you know, uh, if he wants to play for you guys, um, you know, it would be a good thing because then he won't go to France. As soon as he said that, I knew New Zealand rugby were worried because obviously players had been talking about playing for the Pacifica entity as opposed to moving off offshore. So they'd rather stay here and play for a Pacifica team than go play for France, uh, for a France, France French club. So that's imp that's that was just because they wanted to, not money, not anything. So yeah, New Zealand rugby knew what they were getting into. <laughs> they knew that they knew the threat. So would Kanaloa rugby actually pay that amount of money? Because um, you know um, when Jura and Moana Pacifica come, they said they're going to have the same. Salaries as the Super Rugby. So this is the funny thing. So it was New Zealand Rugby that sent that benchmark and said that we couldn't go over what they pay their players. And the, f the reason why is the fear of New Zealand players now jumping ship and playing for us. So we were going to pay them what they were worth for other clubs. That's what we had originally come in with because the investors were at that level. But when New Zealand Rugby said, oh, you know, this is the threat of having one club, one Super Rugby club, can, that has no cap. Yeah. And, and and we respected that. I totally got that and I thought, oh, you know what, that's actually fair. Um, but what but what we were going to do was we'd pay the same level at Super Rugby as everyone else. So there's sort of a threshold of 75 being the, 75K being the lowest and two or 150 or 250 being the highest. And then on top, you top up your benchmark place, you top up your high level players with a New Zealand rugby contract. So New Zealand rugby pay like the All Blacks, yeah, yeah. to whatever they want. So we were going to do that. So we were like, okay, well, if you can do that with the All Blacks, then we'll do that with our players to keep them here. So we were going to pay the Super Rugby uh, contract at the same level, and then on top of that, we'd top them up wow. for um, Samoa, Tonga, Fiji, Cook Islands, whoever they played for, we would top up, top them up to what they're worth. So say um, Charles comes back and he's on a mill, he'd get – the max, which was 150k on Super Rugby or 250k, I can't remember now. Gosh, it was 190, um, and then we'd pay the difference to make a mill, because there were, there were sponsors who wanted to specifically pay for Charles to come home. Sorry, Charles. Peter. Charles, Charles, Charles is Peter. he's carving up over. Uh, yeah, there, there, he's there the best player over there. Pretty yeah. Much, yeah, we had a sponsor who wanted to sponsor Jerome Kainor, and he. Jerome is he's he's I couldn't play top level super rugby if my body tried. You know what I mean? Like but yeah. that that's there are people out there who specifically wanted to cover the costs of that player returning to New Zealand to play in this league. 
under a Pacifica because what people are forgetting, and this is the crucial element, and I hope Moana Pacifica and Drua, if they go all the way, implement this. Nobody has seen a Pacifica team be coached by a Polynesian, by a Pacifica person with a Pacifica lens and a Pacifica strategy. And, you know, actually throw out all those Balangi words that just, <coughs> you know, nobody's actually seen true talent because it's, we've always had Pacifica players being coached with a, a Western philosophy. Yeah, you know. Like even the Sevens, like the Fijian Sevens are so incredibly gifted and amazing and they do play their own style, but it is still governed by Balangi. You know, Ben Ryan was their best coach and, you know, he's he's about as white as they come with. Why is it in the sense for New Zealand rugby to use your model to keep the players here in the country? They can't justify justify the spend when um, you've got grassroots who are struggling. So, you know, this whole Silver Lake deal and they're getting a whole lot of back flack around grassroots not getting any money. That's why. Because they keep investing their money into certain players to come back and stay. No, no, I mean, your model. Your model? Like, you're you're keeping Pacific Island players in the country when you top them up. So that should be incentive for New Zealand. If they got that 20%, any oh, of these players align with them? Because those players are not eligible for New Zealand. Remember that? Mm. So they wouldn't top up our players um, because they're going to go play for Tonga, Samoa, Fiji. Sorry. So yeah. we were going to be the equivalent yeah. of a New Zealand rugby All Blacks contract mm. for Tonga, Fiji, Samoan players. So they had to be eligible to play for their home, home nation. Um, we had originally pitched to New Zealand Rugby, we wanted 100% Pacific Island Nations players. And they said no. Mm. Said, oh, no, no, they won't be good enough. (laughs) I was like, what? Really? You sure about that? Yeah. And then they came back to us uh, 75%. And I said, well, we can try and work with that, but we want 100% by the end of the third year max. Nothing nothing less than that. You know, we want to be back at 100%. We should be able to do that in the first year. So, you know, um, you were saying, like, so we're waiting on that June 30th date. Yeah. July the 1st, if, if, if Moana Pacifica, if they come through and they go, yep, you know, we've we managed to get the money in that. Are you on the next flight out to, you know, are you going to work straight on the next day or are you just going to go, okay, we're just going to give them a little bit of time to see if this really is is the go? Haven't actually thought about that yet. Um, I think I'm just... Uh, waiting for that date to see what happens and then make our decision then. Yeah. Probably just because my gut feeling tells me nothing's going to go ahead. So I've already decided we're just going to pitch back to, to New Zealand rugby for super. Mm. Yeah. Sadly. <laughs> Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, people. <laughs> yeah. Nah, that's, that's just amazing how... Like all these other, all these avenues that you've managed to open up now, because when you said, you know, you've got all these deals, um, you know, there's a chance you've even ending up in Japan or the yeah. South, you know, the South always American, opportunities yeah, elsewhere, mm. yeah. And that's and, and the, the the thing about um, the the business model that he's brought up, you know, that you know, it's it, it, I thought that would have been a win win situation for New Zealand rugby because. You're still, you know, one thing about, um, you know, there's that two, you know, iron sharpens iron. 
you want your your best team. You know, you want your Crusaders always coming up, up against another awesome, or, you know, another really competitive team because it's only going to raise the level of um, of um, of talent. And plus, you're not diluting the pool because a lot of guys they they're going to they're going to Europe because yeah. you know there's no opportunity. I mean, look at Nani Lomape. You know, yeah. you'd want him to stay in the game, yeah. but he came out and he said because they. Yeah. They, they they downsized their offer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and imagine Nani playing um uh-huh. <laughs> playing second five for other one plus figure or for you guys. You know that's. Yep. I know, I know. It's 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 a tough one. Um, there's really nothing you can do um to change the way that New Zealand rugby do things until they adopt a whole different philosophy, and and that means collectivism, which has been a struggle for them. <laughs> Well, and in the meantime, players well, are going to carry on going abroad. But but it just sounds like it's all it's across the board of all New Zealand oh, it's all, um, sports. It's it's actually across the board, not just in sports, but in business in general. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, if you if you yeah, everything, the health system, the, you know, the education system, everything is very colonial. You know, it's done in a certain way, and just a system. No, oh, can't get into that. But yeah. <laughs> all of that stuff, everything is so um, by the book, old school, and it just needs complete reshake and rejig. Yeah. yeah, everything re- overhaul, complete overhaul. You know, I, you know, but it takes courage. I can tell. I can tell by your by your passion that you have for the other. Have you ever thought about venturing into not just sports, but venturing into other? I know you've done community based work in there, but um, showing people. Um, like doing workshops because I know <laughs> I, I talked to a, um, one of my friends, um, or someone I talked about, and he was talking about how there's money that the government has allocated for us islanders, and we just don't tap it. You know, like we don't, because we don't know how to go about it, because we no one's showing us. Like you know, all you have to do is not have to do, but you like you do, like like you said, put down a business plan or put down a thing, a proposition, go to them, and you know, if it's good enough, they'll give you the money. You know, yeah. So um, I have five companies. One one of them is Talisman Consultants Limited, and that's the one where I started adding zeros to my invoicing. Mm. And my specialization now is um, I work with community groups and individuals who want to start business or uh, start a trust or a community organization. And I walk them through it, teach them the skills, and then when they're ready, I take my hand and I let go and just keep an eye on them. So um, funny, <laughs> I set up a company overnight last night. Uh, it was a registered limited liability company, IRD number and logo all done and the first invoice template because this particular person um, had been offered a contract but she was a just a person, didn't have a company, didn't know anything about being self-employed, didn't know the ins and outs of gist and blah, blah, blah. Um, and she rang me out of the blue, and I Far said, out. "This is how we can do it. Um, give me your details. We'll set it up." And she goes, "Oh, really?" I was like, "Yep." So she woke up this morning, a company owner with an IRD number, and she sent her invoice today. You know, so those are the things, and I did that for free. Like I, I get really excited doing pro bono work. I think it's real fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> other people are just like, oh, "My gosh." Um, <laughs> so this weekend, um, I'll probably like I can turn a website over in a night. Um, so kind of law our website. Have you been on our website? Yep. So I did that overnight. 
because um, it was part of our prerequisite for the MLR to do the initial application, so the first application part. You had to have a website and a this and a that and a that. So I set that up overnight. So um, I use all my little skills to do that for community groups especially. And, you know, that's what's so awesome about that is because us, like you said, you know, when, if it wasn't for that MP from Tierra 2, I'm going to assume, oh, no, I was going to say it was. Um, <laughs> was it bitches from there? No, Alfred Nuttall's from there too, but, you know. Um, yeah. Um, anyways, because, you know. My best friend now. Us, us, us as islanders, you know, we, we do um, undervalue ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, we've, you know, we didn't have, you know, there probably is uh, uh, some, you know, people out there that are, but, you know, when it comes to invoicing and that stuff, I would probably, you know, all of us would probably, you know, get, oh, I don't think I'm worthy of that, you know. Yeah. Because I, I know that um, we're vulnerable, you know, because we don't have anyone to actually point us at you. No, you're, you're, this is your worth. You know, you, you need to get that money from those guys. They're even, yeah. They've been taking money from us for so long. Let's go back and get that extra yeah. extra couple of zeros on that, yeah. you know? It's it's our upbringing, you know. Mm. We've been taught to be humble. Exactly. And, and, and we don't have the right to ask for things, you know. You, you get you get what you're given. Um, and so there is a, um, a benefit to being afukasi because whenever I apply the balangi strategy of um, it says seven days, Invoice your seven days notice, you know, <laughs> pay within seven days. Um, I feel more comfortable doing that, you know. But I know that my my Maori Samoan side will probably say, "Oh, nothing." Yeah, 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 <laughs> Truth yeah. is, I'll be sitting there going, "Oh, it's a due. It was due last month. It was due last. Oh, I'll just don't worry, don't worry." Yeah, yeah. I know that. I know that. That's the attitude we have because we, yeah, we don't think it's it's not polite to ask. But actually, if it was the other, so. This is what I do whenever there's an invoice, and especially the big ones, you know, like um, 30 grand kind of plus ones, it needs to be paid, right? And I know with some organizations, they have a, like a, it's done on the 15th day or the 20th day. So like I'll send the invoice and then I'll, it'll have the seven day thing. And on the seventh day, I'll just say, just to, you know, remember it's due, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the only way that I was able to get myself to that point where I'd ring and say, hey, it's due or it's past due is um, remembering when I was young and I had this real egg Vodafone person ringing me saying that my Vodafone bill was due and that they were going to cut my phone off. <laughs> and I was like, it was all right for them to do that to me. And I was a valid customer for many years before that. So if it's all right for them to do that to me, it's all right for me to not do that. And so so Vodafone was one of my biggest biggest um, consulting customers. <laughs> so it was real funny. That's why it came up. Because in the old days, you were asking me for money, and now that's right. I'm asking yeah. you for money. Now so I'm going to you now. That's how you, yeah, yeah. That's how you can remind yourself. It's it's okay for people to ask you for money. It's also okay for you to ask. And um, actually, nine times out of ten, I uh, don't lie, they just either had forgotten or they just didn't have a good accounting system. You know, so it wasn't so it was good that I'd followed up yeah. because actually they were happy to be reminded. A lot of times we tell ourselves, oh, don't be rude. Yeah. But we should, especially small business owners. That's your bread and butter. You don't get paid, you don't get food. Kids go hungry. <laughs> Five companies, damn. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, um, and I invest in other companies as well. Um, it's a bit of a philanthropist. Well, I I call myself a philanthropist. Because I give away a lot. Um, 
but it's not like I don't give away, you know, like traditionally people call philanthropists, you know, billionaires or millionaires. I'm not, I'm not one of those guys, not at all. <laughs> but um, I do a lot of work. Um, like if I get asked to facilitate a workshop, for example, um, and they're offering to pay, um, I'll just say, look, this is so Ponsonby Rugby Club get a lot of um, cash from me. <laughs> donations so I'll go um this is my rugby club and these are their bank details um they know that I do that um and so what they do is they don't even tell me how much I was going to get paid they just pay it straight to the club um and then I don't I ask the club not to tell me how much I've put in um yeah so that's kind of one way I give back I wonder if they name the field after you at some stage now for the money that uh, might be coming in there uh Renamed Western Springs. Oh, mate. Okay. <laughs> Funny story. So when I was on the board there, um, I did the application to resurface the tan. You know, their indoor f- thing that used to have sawdust in it. Yeah. yeah so growing up in sawdust. Because <laughs> the one at, at the Ponsonby Rugby Club used to be at Blake Street in Ponsonby. I don't know if you guys ever went there, yeah, but, yeah. oh, man, that was gross. Driven passage. Yeah. yeah. And then they moved to Western Springs, and lo and behold, the sawdust is back again. Um, so having grown up <laughs> training in it, um, I knew how it was gross, man, especially in winter. Then you'd be like, your nose was full of dust. And so um, I put together a big um, proposal to resurface the inside and then also look at other things to beautify the club. Um, so, yeah, I resurfaced that tan. I feel good when I go to the club. Yeah. <laughs> People look at me and they're like, and the holiday program, we gifted that to the club. So that brings in revenue for them every year. Yeah, I look at a lot of clubs and I go, "Cool, I did that. That was awesome." <laughs> what, what's your What's your take on um, local rugby at the moment? Because oh. yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Mm, there's too much dictation going on from Auckland rugby. You know, the the game's not the same. People just want to turn up and play now. Mm. It's not as um, because you've got super and you've got provincial, if you're not in that catchment, you're not going to get looked at, you know. And, and they're pulling kids from from high school. So there's there's really no emphasis on club. The reason why I love the Crusaders so much is because they have a very robust system that says you play high school, you play Colts, you play premier club, then you play, then you get into the academy and you play provincial and then you play super. And they stick to that. And because of that, um, my husband will take credit for this comment. They are club-hardened men. Yeah? So they've gone through hardships of real, you know, go go to the club, a few beers as well, going through the tours with your team, and you've trained hard like everyone else in the club. In Auckland, the reason why the Blues are so slack is because we babysit these kids in high school when they're looking great as 13, 14-year-olds. And as soon as they're of age, we put them into the academy for the Blues or Auckland Rugby, um, and they don't play a day at club. They, I, I don't know any player that's played Colts that's in the Blues, to be fair. Um, the only players that will play Premier Club Rugby are the ones whose parents are still involved in their club. Honest, honestly, have a look. It's kind of like a, I'll, I'll do this I, for I you, Mum, Dad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, you know, you've got the Iwanis brothers and you've got Caleb. They'll go back to their club and play purely because their parents are still involved in the club, you know? 
That's the problem. That's exactly why the Crusaders are so good at what they do. And you, and you look at the Crusaders, man, and you think, man, like you know, they talk about that conveyor belt. You know, they've got that that these players coming up, and then you know you're always wondering. Where, where the hell is this guy been? You know, but why are these guys so good when they come to... Because they've been in the system exactly. during yeah, their I'm time. Thinking, yeah. Now that I know that that's their system, well, yeah. of and course, and, and it has to build them, eh? Yeah. yeah. They're very clever to protect their players too. You know, like there's no exposure for those players at Colts. Like who's looking at Colts? Because everybody's looking at um, Provincial or First 15. See, when Sky started um, doing the TFR, that was the end of rugby right there. Because basically you didn't even have to recruit anyone anymore. You just watched the games right. and go, I want you and I want you and I want you. And these kids are being converted from eights to hookers at, you know, at 17, 18 years old. And I'm just like, man, these kids, they want to play. You know, let them play. Let them learn the game at club and then recruit. But um, but that's, that's Auckland rugby. It's, it's definitely an Auckland rugby thing. Um, the Chiefs, they heavily rely on their culture. We all know that, you know, it's it's a culture thing. And um, surprisingly, I feel the Crusaders also have a really strong multicultural faceted um, approach as well, which I didn't really ex- knew existed until I did a bit of research into what they do outside of rugby, outside of their system. And I got a hell of a shock when they did this. They do multiculture yeah. as part of their program. And I was just like, wow, I did not know that. Well, the thing is like, because those guys wouldn't stay there, you know. I mean, Richie, Richie, Cody Taylor, all these guys, like David Harvey, and that. You, if it wasn't comfortable, if it wasn't comfortable there, or they felt at some stage like, nah, it's toxic here. You know, we're being picked on there. Yeah. But you know, now these guys stay there. Yeah. You know, partly because of success, but all these guys that they've, you know, like you said, they they've come up through the grades together. If you look at the Will Jordan and all these guys. They came up from the system, yeah. and they, I think there's that kind of camaraderie is like, no, yeah. I'm staying for you because we've, you know, we've come, we've come through this together. Let's let's do this together. And meanwhile, back in Auckland, Philo Tietje resigns. And yeah, see, there was that. Drama oh, Hoskins go down to uh, Manukau. County's yeah. Manukau. You know, County's Manukau. <laughs> so, so, so you, I'm I'm not afraid to to share this part. So, um, we were being severely. Um, pushed into um, having um, Alama and Philo as part of our um, Kanaloa. New Zealand rugby were all over. Like, well, you got to have these two. You got to have these two. And we were just like, um, I'm sorry, no. But the feedback we've had is that they're not the right people for the role. You know. But yeah, un- unbelievable what's happened at Auckland rugby now. Unbelievable. Because there was, you know, firstly there were rumours, you know, because they said someone said, you know. Um, you know, I can't speak for Caleb, but you know they were, they were talking about Hoskins or Tutu and that, and it was yeah. people were like, nah, you know they kind of brushed, no, nah, no, nah, that's not happening. Everything's all right, you know, even though the, we had the review and then it's a and, toxic and, environment. Yeah, and you only have to ask Ty Lavia yeah. why he left. Tell you that much. He's the uh, county's medical coach now. Mm-hmm. Eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and see, it wasn't it wasn't to be the head coach of counties. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Much. yeah. It, there's a toxic environment there, and I don't know the coaches personally, so I don't know why, but there's a toxic environment. You have to figure it out. And a lot of times you only have to ask people like players what's going on, and they'll tell you, but no one asks. Yeah, and, and, and no one will say because they're too scared of being well, dropped. I remember like when I first like thought something was up was when Mills Moliaina left. Oh. Went to the Chiefs, like under some circumstances. But then, <laughs> but then after that, like a, a, a lot of players showed up for other teams down the line. Yeah. 
Well, that oh, one, I, I, yeah. Yeah, I think part of that was, and I've always said this was, the talent spotting from Auckland Blues isn't, it's not very good because the Crusaders, they came and they, they said, they, they showed you how to identify talent because when they, when, when they came and they took Moses to Elite, that was, from, and Ron Cribb, that was, that, that was like, <laughs> this, this, this guy was, um, these guys were right under your nose and these, you kept picking these other guys. These guys, like Wax and Mossy, were, right, holding exactly. the, were holding the bags for Xavier Rush and, and Angus McDonald and Daniel Braid. Yeah. See? And then Wax goes down, you know, Chiefs you know, I, becomes unbelievable. Yeah, that's right. Moss Toyley, same that's right. thing. He became an all black, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's all it was. And and, and that's what I've always thought that that was part of Blues, um, the Auckland Blues was like, and then people were like, well, you're stealing our players. Like, no, no, no. no you're not choosing them. <laughs> so they have to go somewhere else. Yeah. So if you're not going to choose choose them, hey, we'll happily take those guys off your hand. I'll give you a great yeah. example. Shay Afiaki. Oh, Shay Afiaki. Shay Afiaki. Yeah, so yeah. Shay was like incredible Sacred Heart boy, had all the skills, centre, first five, centre, uh, fullback. Um, and I know my husband in particular pitched him to Auckland Rugby and said, please, look at this kid, please. And um, not interested. He got an offer for league and then he got an offer from Crusaders. And he is the next 10 for All Blacks oh. after Richie. Because that's how they picked it. They picked the 19 combos, Crusaders, and so they've invested in him. So no one knows too much about Shay just yet. He has played a few games, but they still, they keep him low on the radar. And then when Richie moves on, he'll be in the limelight. The guy is incredible, and he's Fijian. And I was told, because we had him on our books for Kanaloa, um, him and another player, we were, we were told hands off. And we're like, hold up. You didn't even want him. Yeah, at right. one point there, you didn't even want this kid was going to Australia to play rugby league. Yeah. Don't don't even act like you guys knew about this kid, you know? You know, you know, that's so you know, that's the thing about the law of these kids, you know, they, they end up going to league because there's no, no there's options. no doors, no options here. And then for the Crusaders, they're like, Okay, you know, since you guys this guy's there's another case and it's cool because, you know, in two years' time when he's playing for the running out for the old black go. I was there when Tracy said that on the podcast, you know. Told you so. Yeah. 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 That's my husband's pick. Um, I'll have to say it, but my husband has been an amazing recruitment officer, talent ID scout for years. He's just got it. And he'll pick an All Blacks team, you know, five, ten years before before the team comes about. And I'll just sit there going, damn, you were right. Damn, you were right. You were right. You know, saying that, has he seen anyone, is there anyone that, in the Auckland rugby system that he feels is not getting the fear, getting a look in or... Currently? Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of players. Yeah. But he'll tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to say it on here because they're mm. high school students yeah. and that would just put pressure on them. Yeah. Um, but there are two boys um, in particular that he's seen and he's just like, these two are going to go somewhere. Funny though, because then you've got a couple of boys who have made New Zealand 20s who we did not rate at all. And still don't rate. And it's like these two players do not, should not be in that team, but they had been chaperoned and groomed by um, the likes of Daniel Bowden, who's the talent identification coach for Blues, right? So they they get looked after from high school. They get pushed through. And it's almost like if this TID person likes that person, they're going to make them 
the flashiest, coolest person, even though one of them's laden with injuries year upon year, and another one can't actually do his job. He's a specific role. And that's when you know you've got a, a talent identification system that's failing you because you actually got a one person's opinion, not a collective group's opinion. So the good thing about my husband is when he talent IDs, he'll have his feelers out for who he thinks, but he'll always rely on a group of diverse um, other either agents or, or, or coaches to come and have a look too. And then they'll collectively put their names in and he'll go, great, it wasn't just me, you know. Whereas uh, what we've seen with talent identification coaches in, in Auckland specifically, they rely on one person. And that one person has never made it to high-level rugby. That's a state. That's a very clear statement. How yeah. can you? How can I, you I always possibly? thought that like they invest so much in these bringing up these players that they're scared to um, get someone to take them over if they if they don't yeah if they yeah. don't perform they and don't they're scared perform. to do it. That's right. They got to try and see it through. I had, I had one of my friends tell me the story about a, a guy that was he was coming up for white matter, and um, not the fifteen. Oh, I can't take. Oh, yeah, I yeah. So I put it on the spot. Yeah, yeah, and and um. At, he was at, good at, enough to make the Auckland team, but because Premier, Premier grade, yeah, Premier grade. Yeah, was this was a few few years ago. I think I know the plan. And, and um, they wouldn't bring him up because he wasn't in the in the wider squad, and because he wasn't on the on the payroll. He also didn't have the look. I'm pretty sure I know who you're talking mm, about. Yeah, and exactly. He didn't have the look. He was a completely different shape. There was there was there was two players. There was the, I think it was the the center and the fullback. Um, but there there are players that don't suit the look and don't suit the, um, okay. I'll give you a quick example. The look. Yeah, so there's a look that you have to fit. If you're looking at a hooker, they look for size and they look for um, your build and, yeah, and your boxes. height. Yeah. They, you don't, they don't look at the fact that this player turns over, um, you know, X amount of um, balls in the ruck. This, this player can throw straight X amount of times out of 100. They don't look at that anymore. They literally just look at the player and they say, yeah, you fit the physique. And then we'll work with you. Well, why do you think they take eights and they convert them to hookers? Or they take a second five and convert them to uh, a winger, for example. Because they're looking at the body rather than the skill. And that's why you end up having a whole bunch of players who have the skill but might not have the look. It's a little bit like Moneyball. You know Moneyball the movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got all these players who have remarkable talent, great skills, can definitely play rugby and are eating it up. But because the talent identification coach sees that player as, as overweight or doesn't quite have the look. So like a, a, a winger needs to be tall and lean and muscly at the leg, right? If you're not that, good luck being looked at. That's the problem with Auckland rugby. You have to fit a mould. Um, and so, you know, those players that have genuine talent just get overlooked. If you, like Moneyball, if you invested in the player, got him to the physique that he should be, but you've got this guy who's already naturally gifted and talented, plus the physique by the time you've worked with them, then you're going to have a much more superior player. But Auckland rugby doesn't do that. They just pick brute strength or height, size. Yeah, it's always been the way. Always been the way since way back. Um, and if it's not that, then you're also looking at the name. If you've got a name, you get an automatic shoe-in. That's always been the way. But that's that's rugby in general. Is there a move with... With the props these days, they want a more leaner, skinnier prop, well, a yeah, mobile prop, more mobile props. Um, but that's going to change again. When the rules, every time the rules change a wee bit, the, the 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 shape or size of a player changes. Yeah, but 
See, I would pick, in a hooker's position, right, I would pick someone who can um, um, get a tight head three times out of 10, 10 scrums, you know? Why? Because I've just won that opposition feed in, you know, but that's overlooked now. Um, the other thing that no one picks now is uh, are people who can tackle, you know, so that's like our, nobody even makes hits anymore. Um, defense has always been the thing that shuts down an opposition's team, but we don't have hitters anymore. Players don't hit. And the observations that I made with um, high school rugby is that actually coaches, because they're coaching, they're telling coaches, they're not, um, they're not coaches that allow players to play. They kind of, that this is how we're doing it. We've got the ear pieces and the mouthpieces. We're telling you how to play. So that has created a coach telling mentality. So the players just do as they're told. So players are no longer coming up and putting spot hits on. Those things that are um, instinctive. instinctive yeah. Yeah. Um, they're not tackle jackling. They're not making a tackle, going to ground, getting to feet because the, the, um, the coach is telling them, nah, stay off the ball, stay off the ball, quick ball, quick ball. So our kids, especially Māori Pacifica, who have this natural inclination to do spontaneous things, aren't doing it anymore. So even like those little skill sets that used to be really um, um, attractive to a talent identification coach, uh, just overlooked. Because so, the kids are either not doing it at all, or they're getting growled for doing it. So, so they're getting coached out of them? Coached out of them. Far out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's ever since the earpiece and the mouthpiece yeah. came into well, secondary school rugby, that's when it started. My, my, egotistic coaches telling kids how to play. My, my cousin, he, so his son plays for um, St. Peter's. And yeah. he sent me, he sent me like this mock-up. Yeah, I, sh- I, I said to him, and I went, is this a, is this a super rugby um, thing? Because it's got the kids all lined up and got the, graphics. the positions and that. I was like, you know, I thought, oh, was he sending me a photo of the blues? And then I looked it up and I saw my, yeah. you know, my son, my cousin's son. I was like, man, is this where, you know, and it's got all the sponsors lined up. It's got, it's got the physio yeah. and all that. And I went, mate, you know, this is. <laughs> Schoolboys rugby. Yeah, schoolboys rugby. But, and then I saw the Kelston walk up and I was like, mate, when, you know, because we we're kind of cricket. I was like, man, imagine that if they had that for Premier Basketball, you know, we would have been standing uh, there like, yeah. trying to be, you know, kind of cool in that. It fits basketball. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But and I was like, Far out, and then you know, and I know what's happened because Sky's put them on, yeah. you know, and so they've got to try and look, you know, look the part and have these mock-ups. Because I wouldn't be surprised if that if that's what Sky would have used on their on their graphics and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So, oh, for yeah. sure, it's changed the game completely, and the egotistic nature of coaches, anyway. So, in in secondary schools, usually coaches are teachers at a school. Other schools adopt a external coach. But they all come from the same cloth. You know, they're teachers, they're tellers, they're not um, empowerers or educators in that sense. You know, they're, they're the ones that have the authority and they tell you what to do. And so, you know, a lot of players, I find, they lose their, yeah, they lose their natural gifts in high school. And by the time they get to provincial, they're just playing robotic, robotic rugby. Do, do you think that's what makes the Crusaders so because if you look at some of the guys they're quite instinctive as well so you I, look at yeah, those guys I haven't seen enough of the high school stuff down there yeah. to, to comment but I guess so you know if they're still quite I mean but once they get into that you know how you said they come through the academy through the cults and that you know yeah. do they, the coaching down there must be because when they come back up if you see these guys 
if you see the Will Jordans and the David Harveys and that, they they do stuff off the off the cuff. Off the cuff. Yeah. yeah. You know? It's it, sorry, I say so when they get to that level it's less robotic. Yeah. 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 It's a it's a I've been to all the coaching clinics and <laughs> done all the coaching clinics. Yeah. Like literally, I walk into those clinics and I just like, oh, not this again. Because it's literally, everybody's being taught the same thing. I don't like pods. I think pods are a waste of time and I think it's become DNA for rugby now. Everybody does pods. And the next phase or the team that's going to win moving forward is the team that throws out pods and throws out these shotguns off the run and actually adopts a completely different strategy, which might be just going back to the old school way of playing rugby, which is free-flowing, you know, less, less. I mean, serious. Okay, so as a defender, as soon as I see someone standing there in pod waiting to receive, I'm like hitting that person. You know, it's so it's it's just so easy to read now, and we've been doing this for for over a decade, the same strategy. So I'm looking forward to seeing someone bring in a whole different way, and that's where Kanaloa was going to be. I was going to say that. You know, we were just like, nah, that's throw the throw the book out. Yeah, that's yeah. old. That's so old now. You know, so um, you know, sevens rugby is a passion of mine. I love sevens because it's so like it's basically touch, and if you can play touch and not get touched, you should be able to play sevens and not get tackled. That's my thinking. Um, and when I was um, at Eden with my husband, my husband took the Eden Sevens team and he adopted um, a Sevens strategy which was based on touch and we used all touch moves. You know, he was doing, honestly, all touch moves. <laughs> but he had three players. He had the Costa brothers who had come back from Argentina um, playing in the team and a lot of the boys from Massey. That, that was the group of, of Eden um, for that year they ended up winning everything uh, and then they won the club sevens and then they won the national club sevens and it was the first time I'd ever seen um, that philosophy being coached at club level and it obviously worked you know so these boys were like bringing the players slowed right down walking back to their own like defending their own five meter line and then just jamming and then taking off it was really cool to watch awesome sevens um I waited for Auckland Rugby <laughs> or New Zealand Rugby. You know, Gordon Titchens was the coach at the time to adopt this or to see it because it was working. And so he, so my husband also did it with the Cook Islands girls and they qualified, you know, for the repertage in Ireland using the same philosophy, the same strategy. And what was really cool about that tournament, so um, he'd won all the games that he needed to and he could have beaten Samoa in their final game. But they'd already qualified. Oh, so what he did was he played his bench, and they lost, but they played the bench. Yeah. You know, he copped it from everyone in the Cook Islands because you know, why did you why did you lose if you had put on such and such they would have won. I was like, because hmm. we had already made the ripper charge. It was time for our other girls to win, yeah. but he adopted a, a touch philosophy with them as well, and it it was incredibly cool to watch, and it was innovative rugby. But like I said, um, I don't know if it's pride or ego but no one adopted it nobody nobody picked it up and ran with it and those costa brothers who are incredible i think they got pulled into the academy and then dropped do you think so, it's frustrating for the head coaches to they can't change anything then i don't know if the head coaches don't want yeah they just can't change themselves <laughs> i don't know they can change yeah, themselves because you yeah. know once you it sounds like you know it's like the matrix you know once you program something <laughs> yeah. oh that's it yeah i don't want to hear anything you know like i think it's the, fair yeah sorry carry on I mean, i'm just saying like 
you know, like it's like old school Samoan and Rafasawa, like you mm. know, you can't tell me anything else. Yeah. This is how it's gonna be. It's yeah. worked all these years, you know, let's not change why why change? You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's been this way. Yeah, it's always been this way. Always. It's worked. Yeah, I don't matter, I don't care if the other way is gonna take us over for the next twenty years, I'm gonna stay in the moment, you know, that kind of thing. It's re- really conservative the Yeah. The rugby. Uh there's I think there's a fear. You know, what you were saying about coaches. There's there's a fear of of trying something new because if it doesn't work, you look like an idiot coach. Yeah. Those who have courage will try it, and they'll back themselves. You know, and that's something I say about my husband because, you know, and and we we do the same thing in business. You know, we just back ourselves, and because we back ourselves and we commit wholeheartedly, it always works. You know, so I think that's what people just need a bit more courage. Try it. Because you'll be surprised how cool it looks, when, <laughs> you know, when you've got, I mean, this team was tiny. <laughs> you got, traditionally, you'll always have your big, you know, your big runners and you've got a couple of fast, um, solid wingers, you know. This team was tiny. They were they were smaller than me, you know, these starting seven players. <laughs> and I was just like, man, this is incredible. And the reason why any other coach wouldn't do it is because, oh, what happens if the ball's turned over? They can't, they wouldn't be able to tackle these big guys in the other team. Well, if you back yourself to the point where you know your team's good enough, you know you're never going to give the ball to the other team. You're always going to have possession. And that's what happened. This team always had 100% possession, you know? Have you seen any other teams, like just maybe international other club teams, kind of look like they tried to adapt um the style that your your husband was bringing to the sevens. Australia brought in uh, a similar style, and they had a, a real um, minimal player at the breakdown, which is something he introduced as well. So it was, uh, you know, they would always commit a couple or three for some reason, even in sevens. Um, instead, you just make the tackle and you just get up off the player, and then the balls can be played. That happened for two seasons with Australia and. They got they they definitely improved their game, but I think what they were missing was the other. It's the slowing down part. It's the unfortunately in sevens rugby players keep moving forward. They keep progressing forward, whereas you'll see with Fijians they've been doing it for years. They just you know jog back, they go back, they regroup, um, you know. So that's the organic touch feel. But yeah, I think Australian players are so robotic that they'll always think of going forward. So that was what they missed. They just needed to slow down and just stop. Kind of look up, yeah. Look up. <laughs> I'd imagine these New Zealand coaches that go overseas for jobs and you know get head coaches of other other countries. Yeah. Um, they probably you know they got a job, but they're also relieved that they can start from scratch again or yeah, bring they're their more, more um, bring their ideas and more valued overseas. Mm. That's for sure. Richie Walker's an example of that. He. He couldn't get any coaching jobs here, and then he goes to the MLR, and he ends up um, coaching the winning team for two seasons. Um, and only then did he get a look in for the Auckland Storm, the women's rep team. And I was just like, man, really? You're going to throw a guy a bone? You know, <laughs> This guy has proven himself here. He's had to go overseas to show that he's uh, credible at that level. And when he comes back, you offer him the women's team. Not that there's anything wrong with our women's game, but... You know, if a play, if a coach is that good, then give him give him a decent team. You know, align him with the Auckland team, the Auckland men's team, and then progress him upwards. But 
you know, I've seen that too many times in my lifetime. Yeah. Great coaches that go nowhere. Jack Hutch is one of the coolest examples of that. He should have been a he should have been a rep coach. I know, I know, I know Jack um, very well too. Um, mm. um, cousins with his wife Lily. So, yeah, yeah. He and, he was one of my faves because I, I I remember watching him coach and I I learned from him. He talks like this, and that's as loud as he talks. And so. You know, here I was, a young coach. I was 19 when I coached the women's team at Ponies. And I would like, rah, 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 really loud and yelling out instructions. And then I watched him and he literally talks really quietly. And then so everybody immediately, be they be quiet as well and they come closer to listen to him. And I was like, oh, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's how it's done. And so I adopted that style from watching <laughs> and now this year hopefully i get to to coach with him my daughter's sevens for saint mary's oh nice yeah, hopefully yeah we'll see oh that's awesome yeah i know you know i, I remember jack is a you know he's a want to be legend on the wing there i remember when i first um, met him and he was like my family were already talking about him being, you know, uh, playing, you know, for Ponsonby and that. Yeah. And when you see him walk, I was like, oh, look, for, I thought uh, I think I had the biggest fires in, um, <laughs> in, 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 in Auckland, but uh, Jack might have, uh, you know, might be up there with him. So. No, yeah. Terribly humble. Yeah, he is. He is. And that's the one thing I've always known about, you know. Um, so that's, yeah. The, the Pons- you know, going about, talking about Ponsonby, there's a, you know, out west, you know, they talk about Ponsonby always seem to, Always get the talent, or I'm not saying it, but you know they they feel like you know they they are the poaching poaching Poach. players, and then how come Ponsonby are still the number one club in in, in Auckland rugby? Yeah, you, no, yeah. for a while there because you know we remember you know Marist back in like the late '80s they had uh, Bernie McCarles and then Brock and all that, so that's when club rugby was awesome. You know, Irani was playing for suburbs. Mark Bailwhistle was there and all that. Because me and my friends, uh, me and my, my really good friend, Henry Nicholas, at work, you know, we were supposed to be working, we'd just stand around and we'd just talk about that, how we used to look at the Western leader or in the paper and go, oh, man, look at suburbs playing, White yeah. Matter and all that, you know. <laughs> all these guys playing for them. Western leader. Yeah, that's right. Yeah? That's as Westy as you can get. Yeah. And, and, and that's when Auckland rugby was strong because club rugby was really strong. Yeah. You know, that's right. What's, they allowed uh, there to be a club a club season, <laughs> and now the club season morphs with the provincial. So you either play one or the other. Yeah, yeah. No, I I miss those days because that's my my my, my upbringing. Like Shem Tupu was the man. Oh, yes, Darren Kelly and all those fellows. Yeah. Um, but that's what's missing, I think, now. That that whole club, you know, um, the reason why Ponsonby's still strong. I think has a lot to do with its roots. Um, mm. We were like the hub for Pacifica, yeah. you know, like during the Dawn Raids even in that time, you know, so there's a history to it and they celebrate that history a lot. But um, I think if you win enough championships with any young person, they're going to want to play for the, yeah. the club that has the most likelihood of winning a championship, you know, but... Um, the truth is, the way that you combat that, and this is for suburbs and, you know, te papa, <laughs> is, um, is you go out and you build relationships. So I know that Ponsonby Rugby Club have always gone out and built relationships with Calston, or obviously they have Ponsonby Calston yeah. purely because of the relationship with Calston boys. 
So they've always built a relationship with Carlton Boys. They've always built a relationship with Mags. They've always built a relationship with the surrounding schools. And because of that, and they do that every year, um, players automatically come. You know, so I know hands down, because I've done this for clubs, um, Teachers Eastern, for example, when I was there, they didn't have a 21s team. So we had to actively go out and recruit. And it means you have to get out into the community. You actually have to do the groundwork. You have to build relationships. Um, by the end of that season, we had a full 21 team. They lost every single game, but there was always 28, 29 players. So they always had four or five players that couldn't even play, but they'd turn up, you know, and that was because instead of us going and recruiting like everyone else does, Auckland Grandma, you know, um, St. Peter's, like everybody recruits to the same school, you know. Um, we went to Linfield College. Because, <laughs> you know, the thing, I don't even know, the thing about Linfield College and the way Zachary College is, <laughs> yeah, but is that they, you've always got a diamond in the rough there. You've got a yeah. guy there that just hasn't had the exposure, yeah. you know. And you have clicks of people, not just like one or two stars, you know. You actually, because so, cause everybody's going to Grandma and St. Peter's and St. Kent's to recruit in Calston, Um the best, the best players will go to that club or that club or that club. Never in a group, we're going to go here. Never. Never happens like that. The boys don't get together and say we're going to go. But if you go to Waitakere or if you go to Liston or you go to Linfield, okay, you're not going to have a superstar team. That's cool. But you're going to have a clique of boys who want to be there every week. They'll turn up. They'll pay their subs. That was another thing. That was the first 21s team I'd ever seen that paid their subs, you know. And it's because they wanted to be there, but no one had ever asked for, if they wanted to be in a under-21s team, you know. Um, so that's actually what clubs should learn. Clubs should learn that it's not about recruiting from the same schools that everyone else does. It's about building capacity in your local. And if you're doing the work at grassroots level and going into these schools and actually offering support and development in the schools, they're going to come to your club, club ready. But, you know. Finding people to to do that in this day and age. I know what I know what a matter. They're very fortunate because they do have strong links with um, the surrounding schools. So if you look at the way a matter team now, you'll you'll always see, uh, especially on Alistair Old Boys page, you'll see guys that are, were playing for 15, three or four years ago. They're playing for the yeah. the top. Side. And what a matter, you know, they've always been competitive. You know, they've either been from the middle of the pack to the top of the table, and I. I I think way to matter and Ponsonby, they they they've got the um, they've got the model right, you know. Like that's why they're always going to be at the because way to matter does have a big um, community presence, you know, because yeah. that that's our local. So yeah, they've done a yeah. whole lot of rejuvenation work on the club. Yeah, they've got a great committee, at volunteers. You know, it comes down to volunteers, about man. The volunteers, eh? Yeah. So if you can get a good working group going and people who are passionate about the club, you're going to be able to get out to the schools. You're going to be able to show these players that the club that you want them to come to is actually a cool club to go to. So um, Eden was a great example of a project when my husband was the club development manager there uh, for two years. They didn't have an Auckland rep player, didn't have a New Zealand rep player. They hadn't had an Auckland rep player since Lindsay, um, um, and that was back in the 80s, I think. Um, Lindsay Harris, I think is his name. Um, so the first thing Matt did was, you know, um, go in and recruit locally and build up his talent base from local. 
Um, and then we, you know, obviously went out and got the, the Costa boys back and we offered to have them at Eden. And um, from there, the club has just grown and, and, and now they're, man, they're like super competitive. They've had, the, they've got their first All Black, with, um, what's his name, Ta'aval, I always forget his name. Angus. Angus, thank you. Um, so they've, they've got All Black, they've got Auckland reps, they've had Sevens Auckland reps and Sevens, New Zealand Sevens players as well. And that was all in a really sh- short space of time. But that wasn't just all Matt. You know, there were really, really keen, new, committed um, committee members, um, you know, especially like Steve Thomas who does all their marketing and stuff, you know, so there were he there were people there doing their little bits of work. And then there was, you know, the recruitment of the women's girls, you know, so the, a, new, a, a women's team for starters um, and coaches to take the team and then volunteers. So, you know, it's about building community and getting them all together and then once you've done that and everybody has a piece to offer to the club collectively is that word again um you know you can walk away from it like what matt did so they didn't have enough funding to pay him in his third year they didn't get the local grant that they got the years before um so he had to finish up but he left and the club has just continued on that platform that foundation you know and now they're men you know they could win. They could win Galashad easy with the team they have, and it's not a star-struck team. It's not a team that's built on, you know, super players or provincial players. But they're community-embedded players who love playing for their club. So it's a great example of a club that can just, you know, compete at that level. You know the cool thing about you know listening to you and uh, that story is that you've left. Whatever ventures that you've gone into, you've left it better than how you've come into the place, mm-hmm. and that every after you've left, they've managed to prosper only because you've set the culture of you've reset, you've reset the culture, or you've given you've shown these people you know, you're doing this, you're doing this absolutely, you're doing it the wrong way. You know there are stop going in the in the straight and narrow. There's, there's there's other places where you can you know think outside the norm, think outside the box. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's that's what's awesome because you know, if if you can, it's like, I know it's still early, but you've 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 built this legacy now. You know, you've got all these things, and it just seems like that you've certainly, whatever comes, you know, going forward, it's, it's always going. It's it just sounds like whatever you touch is going to be successful because of that, because of the vision and because of how the way you work. So that's that's just no, for me. That's that's awesome. Yeah. It's funny because you know when you start a business, it's always going to be a risk, right? Mm-hmm. And it sounds like like everything you've done, every like business or venture you've done, or helping communities and all that, you're just bringing in, you're just going in and having to calculate the risk that will work. You know, and and people, there's they don't take risks. Mm. The people that you approach, yeah. the people yeah. that you work with, yeah, these are the people that don't take any risks. They just they just do what's been done before because they know it's it's a safe bet. They don't want to change anything, otherwise they'll get in trouble or something will go wrong. Fear, but like you said, fear, right? Yeah, the, yeah. the fear, and that's where the fear comes fear in. But, fear, but, yeah. but you're coming in Agi- and saying... Agitator, change, <laughs> it up, change it up a bit, and yeah, take the risk from them. Actually. Take the risk from yeah. yeah. I think it takes a certain kind of person to... For you, I think you're a strong person to actually come in and just, just do that, you know? Like, it takes a certain type of person. There's not many people out there. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so I've had a tough time. You know, my life hasn't been all, all flowers, you know, like, you know, abusive relationship prior to my husband, not my husband, but, 
you know, uh, started off as a young teenage mum, you know, like lots of stuff, you know, but the hard things in life have probably given me the strength to just, you know, fight. And plus my grandfather was a pro boxer. So. <laughs> <laughs> that helps. Yeah. But yeah, I think, thank you. Thank you for that compliment. Stacy. Stacy actually mentioned something at the end of my interview last time and I, I didn't, I didn't hear it. It just went over my head, but I, I watched the interview and I went, oh, and he mentioned that, you know, um, he thanked me for coming into this space by announcing our MLR on Tangata Pacifica and bringing awareness to Pacifica owned and operated and then hitting it with, and New Zealand rugby, we're going to go for a super rugby license. And he's like, you know, had you not done that, we, none of us, nobody, Moana Pacifica, Drua, could, might might be here right now because, you know, there was no talk about that prior to us doing what we were doing. And that's, I, I went, like, once I watched that, I went back to my room and went, oh, if that's all I've achieved, at the end of all this, say, you know, say everything, say I can't move tomorrow for some reason, I just don't can't do anything anymore. If I've achieved just bringing awareness to how we can do this piece on our own and we don't need other people to do it for us, then I'm, I'd be real happy. <laughs> that's why I was really grateful for Stace for yeah. that comment because I hadn't even I was still trying to achieve something you know but when I heard that I went actually I've achieved it mm. you've, yeah. you've, 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 you've you've awakened people you know you've, you've said no nah, this is possible and 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 for you to go after the big dog, especially where you, because you, know, you, you know, around here you don't call you don't, you don't talk about that name you know you don't call them out man but you know when you to 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 have the you know that that much like to believe so much in yourself or in, in what you have to call these guys out they they are probably in shock they're like hey who's this person trying to oh okay and then they thought oh you know like any other no oh, you know, we'll see what comes of it. and then when you when you came with the funder they're like oh okay let's let's, uh, let's wake up now because these guys are for real for real you know yeah, yeah because a lot of there's probably been a lot of talk of like stuff like this before, so they they probably thought this might be one of those uh, another one of those cases, but nah. Yeah. Yeah. You should be yeah. a bit worried, but yeah. yeah. I think it's also about making people think for themselves too. Mm. You know, if we all we all want to get the we all dream of like one day being all black, but sometimes it's not it's really not it's not really the well, case. See, I was you know? can I say shit out of luck because <laughs> yeah. I was born a female, so yeah. I was never going to be an all black. You know. And I knew that, but I knew I loved rugby. Um, and so, yeah, I got into sports administration really early. And that was always going to be the way, you know. If I could not be an All Black, then I'll do do, a, do something else in that domain. Yeah. But I might be able to play for the All Blacks now with all these, you know, <laughs> you can play for a female team or a male team. <laughs> By, what is it? <laughs> binary? There's non-binary. Yeah, non-binary team. Yeah. yeah. But no, it's pretty. You know that with with all those kind of things, it's pretty crazy the climate. You know, sport, sports, and all that kind of stuff. And that are you? You know, out of your five businesses that yeah. you have, is uh, sports management one? Like, uh, as like an agency? Agent? Yeah, agency. Um, we actually do agency for free. So mm. so, so we mentor players um, who want help, and we give them all the legal advice that they need. And then when they're at a level where 
you know, they're going to come into some serious money. We actually place them with a trusted agent. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And we do not take any money from them. And that's why we have heaps of sons and daughters <laughs> from other mothers because because they will always try and, you know, reach out. Like, so it was, uh, one of one of the boys had his 21st a couple months ago and he reached out and asked if we could come, you know, come down or at least do a video. You know, so that, that's the relationship we have with certain players because they know they can trust us because we never ask for anything and we'll never ask for anything because, you know, shouldn't. It's, it's, it's um, so... Um, I don't, think agent. <laughs> I don't think players need agents. Yeah. They just yeah. need parents that understand what to do. You know, the, 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 <laughs> reminds me of the story about, uh, so Ray Allen, um, he was um, renegotiating his contract. And instead of hiring uh, an agent, he, he went and he um, hired um, Johnny Cochran, you know, from yeah. the OJs. And all he did was look over this contract, look for any loops, you know, I mean, any for any loopholes or anything in that. So he paid him something like $350 an hour. And he came back and said, it's legit. And so he signed the contract and that was it. And he'd cut off losing 20% of his pay to an agent. And all he had to pay was pay... Good old Johnny Cocker and the, uh, you know. A little fee just A little to fee just to, to go free, over free, it. Free, free, yeah. Free, yeah. See, exactly. And, and that's what a lot of people, all these, I see these um, agents waiting down at the, you know, at the, at the okay. league field and looking over these kids and the rugby field and that kind of <laughs> stuff. I only bring up the story because a good friend of mine, he's a coach, in a, so he's playing, a, he's coach of a, a, a top team here in Auckland. And um, I hope he doesn't mind me telling the story. So he had one of those guys that um, he, he used to coach uh, last year. And he told him, come play for my team, you know, and uh, I'll, sort out the, um, I'll sort out the paperwork and, you know, I'll get your match payments and all that. And so we were on the phone. And so as a joke, you know, because he's a young kid, and he goes, and he said, he goes, hey, hey, man, I managed to, to talk to the club. And, um, yep, so we, so you're going to be all right with uh, $5 a game? And, you know, first thing the kid came in, he goes, yeah, oh, oh, okay. You know? And it, but you know, and it's, oh yeah, and then so if, if um if you win, you know, so you get a win bonus of uh, ten dollars on top of that, so that's fifteen dollars. And I knew he was joking because you know that's the way he is. And you know the kid, he goes like this, oh 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 oh, okay then. And you know, and he's oh, and and you know what? Both of us looked at each other, and it was kind of like a moment, a moment because there was. A it was like check. reality check, like poor yeah. dude, you know, and and the realization, like, oh man, he really does not know. He does not his own worth. exactly, yeah. yeah. And he was, you and, know, and he didn't want to say no. Yeah, exactly, you know, because For he fear had, of missing out completely. That's right. Yeah, and he goes, hey, hey, don't ever, you know, don't ever be like that again. Look, yeah. man, I've got you this deal and that, and you, you should have heard us. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And he goes, hey, hey. Mate, you would, you know, you need to know exactly what you said. You need to know your worth, you know. People are going to come to you like this, you know. Because he was telling, he, he had some other guy from, I hope he doesn't mind me telling, he had some guy message him from Australia. He goes, hey, I want you to come play for, um, play for my rugby league team over here. And he goes, I okay, can And so he, he forwarded it to my, to my mate who's, who's a, the coach. And he goes, okay, well, uh, what are they offering? He goes, oh, he said, hey, just turn up. And um, you know he'll sort it out then. And I, you know, and I thought, look at these kids here. There's no one to, to safe protect to, to, protect, to protect them, them like you are. Yeah. You know, yeah. like having that thing. And yeah. these kids, because of the way out, you know, they're more, um, you know, to to be humble in that. Yeah. He didn't even have the heart to say to him, fifteen dollars. You know. Yeah. And we, you know, he goes because you know he laughed. He goes, hey, hey. 
they never do that again. You know, when you come to a situation like that, come and see me. You know, you you know, run it through me, and I'll tell you what's you know. Yeah. And then, so he he got in contact with that guy that, who was representing the team over in Australia, and then he goes, "Hey, are you doing this? Can you do this? Can you?" And then like, dead silence. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. As soon as someone that knows how to protect a, a player gets involved, they shut down all the rubbish. So. Mostly agents will turn up at the kids. So I've I have sons, obviously, who uh, were high school students and are now at university, right? And we had agents turning up for one of our sons to his school during lunchtime, and I rang the school and hoed into the sports director and said, "Number one, where is your safety policy allowing agents to come into the school grounds during school time?" And um, number two, I found out you were aware of this encounter. <laughs> Where was my phone call to let me know? You know, but people get so excited about, um, you know, this might be a great opportunity for your son. And I'm sitting here going, great, tell, your, tell his parents first. You know, but the reason why agents go directly to the young ones is because all they have to do is float free tickets to the Dragons or free flights to whatever um, or a few caps <laughs> caps, you know, <laughs> a couple of freaking free caps, you know, um, and the and the the young player will always feel special, and that's when they've got them. As soon as the young boy or girl feels special, and you know, doesn't even matter if they've done the same thing to twenty other people, you know, they won't believe it. The student will not believe it. The the young person will always believe they are special and unique, because that's what an agent is trained to do. They're sales reps. They want to tell you that you're special, that you're going places, and we've got a great opportunity for you. And then the minute they don't want you, they'll just cut, like what you said. Yeah. And, oh, who are you? Yeah. Sorry, bro. What yeah. was it? You know the other thing, like, um, sorry. That's <laughs> the, the same part. Dealing, the, dealing with the emotional yeah. baggage that happens after when they don't call that's, back, Yeah, that's the hard part. Yeah. You know, so, so, you know, my friend, so the same thing, like, so all those boys, they play college, college footy. And uh, he was, so his son came home one day and he said to him, oh, man, uh, so, so-and-so's got an agent. And then he was like, yep. I'm not an agent. Yeah, and he goes like this, well, what about me, Dad? And he looked at him, you know, because, you know, my mate, he's been in the game for a long time, so he knows all this stuff. And he goes, you just need to go down and do some do some suicides down there. That's yeah. all you need to worry about, boy. Yeah. He goes, but he's got an agent. And he goes, and what does that mean? Yeah. You know, and that's, so all these kids, they get amongst themselves and they go, oh, man, I've got an agent. Then, oh, yeah. what was my agent? You know, oh, I'm going to wait for, you know, and then, and that, like you said, it opens up. Someone turns up for cap. Oh, yeah, I'm an, I'm yeah. a nation now, you know. Yeah. Agent Zero might turn up, you know, Cody yeah. Banks, you know. Yeah. But, you know, that's the thing. It's like, a status thing. And yeah. I feel sorry for young people, especially young men, because they feel they don't actually know, the, they don't have the knowledge. So mm. the truth is having an agent means that, A, your parents are not aware of how to negotiate, or B, you don't have a relative or someone close to home who can negotiate. Um, you know, so in some cases an agent is is necessary, but in most cases they're not because the reality is your child that's coming out of high school doesn't need an agent, you know. Your child coming out of high school needs someone who can read uh, an offer and decide whether or not it's it's good for that person. And if they want it to be like what Johnny Cochran, right, just, just put it in front of a lawyer. A lawyer would do the same thing. Or a rugby union or a players association, even though I'm not a fan of the players association, <laughs> but there are... Uh, there are organisations that are free that can do that for you. 
you know, you do not need an agent. You're literally just having your money taken from you. That's that's why when when boys especially brag about having agents, I laugh and go, well, that means you're a poor business person because you are parting with money that you are making for yourself, you know. And it's sad because it's just the culture that they're brought up to believe that having an agent means you're great. Actually, it's not. Not in all cases. Yeah, it's pretty sad. I love, I love that how you are doing that um, and, and being mentors to these kids because, like, you know, when you were saying that, that's why that story came back up. I was like, oh, these kids are... Like, there is no one to help. That's protect, right. Yeah. And, and their parents as well. Like, because my friend, like, he has a lot of their... A lot of his teams that he's coached, um, you know, junior rep teams, because he forms such a, a bond with these kids, their kids tell their dads or their mum, can you ring... Can you ring him, please? And he's so he has to deal. You know, he he does it because he loves the kids. You know, so he'll go, okay, what are they telling you this? Okay, well, I can point you in this direction, yeah. or you know, and and the thing is, I feel sorry because he's you know he is the coach, but that's a lot of you know that's extra, a bit of a, yeah, a lot of work. Yeah, it's work. A, yeah, and a bit of a someone else on gets him. paid to do what that's he's doing. That's right. Yeah, for free. And and the thing is, like, because if it does, if nothing you know if nothing comes of it, you know he. Uh, it might he might feel like oh okay I might have let them down but it's just so much stuff to juggle and you know it's good to to know that you're doing it so you know I mean there's somebody else that's really looking out for them in mind not to profit anything just so that our or our our, our youth or our, our Pacifica Maori people have someone that's yeah. that there's nothing in return for them except yeah. for for them to prosper you know I'll tell you something though. We do a lot of bono, you know, like pro bono work and voluntary, and we offer our s skills and knowledge for free. The amount of people that still look at you sideways and go, "What are you really getting at?" You know, like gone are the days when you can just be genuinely a volunteer or someone who likes to help. I know that from a fact because a lot of things that I've done, like yeah, but we, what's in it for you? What's in it for you? You know, so kind of law, right? The, the business model that we run, all proceeds were going back to the islands. It wasn't going to the directors. So we weren't going to be taking a profit off the top, which is what you have with all other clubs. All other clubs, if there's an investment group, the proceeds go back to the to the directors. So our commitment to our Pacific Island Nations was that any proceeds that were made out of the financial year was to go directly back to the unions. And even then the unions were like, well, what's... What are we like? You yeah, know, yeah. what are we gonna have to do to get that? Like, where are you going with this? It's like, can we just not be that cool organization that actually parts with our money because we don't need it? You know, it was really hard to convince people that it was just this is what we want to do. I think it's because <laughs> most of those, most of those, yeah, but most of those organizations are kind of like they run off them and like. If I can do this for you, yeah. you can do this for <laughs> yeah. me. They're, they're used to that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I need a kickback. Or, you know, yeah. you know, it's kind of like, you know. They... We, what, what got us over the line with the unions was, um, so I, we did a bit of project work in the Cook Islands, uh, 2010 and 11, 12. Um, and basically, we'd been to the island and we really enjoyed it. <laughs> so, it is really nice. Oh, it's so yeah. cool, right? So me and my husband decided that we wanted to go back more and more frequently so we convinced our mates um to um, come with us on little expeditions to the cook islands so basically what we'd do 
is we'd pay for our flights whenever they were cheap. So, you know, there was that sort of period when they were like 120 bucks to $180 one way. So we would organize everything on that side. So when I went over for the sevens, I became very, very close friends with the owner of Air Aratonga. So he said, whenever you come over to coach, you can use my um, accommodation house for free. So I was like, sweet. So I knew I had a place for people. So all I had to do was get people there. So what I did was we convinced our mates, we were living on Waiheke at the time, to um, come with us and we'd go to the Cook Islands, we'd stay for a whole week or two weeks and we'd coach in the schools um, and um, in the evenings we'd go out and party. That was our thing. And, you know, when, when it was not school term, the kids would come with us and we'd have a holiday. So we did that for two years. Um, we did that and it was so cool. It was working so well in the local schools on Raratonga that the air Raratonga guy said, hey, um, I'll take you out to Achu, Mangaia. So we ended up doing the outer islands as well. And it was so successful. Um, we had collaborated with the blue light, with the police. So we'd collaborated with them. So they were coming in. And the Cook Islands rugby, they were coming in. So every time we had a coaching session at schools, we had the, these two entities with us as well. And it was so successful. And they were trying to figure out, why are you guys doing this? Like, what's your catch? And we're just like, having a holiday in the Cook Islands <laughs> four times a year, yeah. maybe five. Um, you know, they just couldn't understand. Like, so you're paying for this and you haven't asked for any funding. So we weren't taking any money off any of the organizations. I was like, no. Um, anyway, then all of a sudden, Cook Island tourism really, they caught wind of what we were doing. They really loved it and they could see there was a relationship between us and New Zealand. So, you know, the, anything New Zealand, Cook Islands is good for them. So they offered to fund a project for us every year. And because Blue Light Police and Cook Islands Rugby were part of the whole project, um, I had to share all of that with them. And I said, look, Cook Islands Tourism are keen to sponsor this project now moving forward. You know, what would you like to do? Cook Islands Rugby Union were over the moon because no one had ever really shown an interest in anything and it was good for their development at grassroots level. The Blue Light Police, who was actually governed overarches um, New Zealand police when they found out they shut down the project because they wanted the funding oh, <laughs> so it was like we've been doing this for two years we've been paying our own way no one had any issues we loved this collaboration as soon as you find out that Cook Island Tourism want to invest in the project you want to take over so I had this wonderful constable Kevin Kneebone or whatever his name was down in Tauranga so not even a Cook Islands. So I had a really cool relationship with the Cook Islands police, like, you know, because we'd been on all these things together. Um, so we then, you know, it was the Blue Light Police brand that we were doing it under, so that's cool. So I said, okay, that's fine. You guys can do it. And, yeah, in the space of 10 years since that's happened, nothing, no program, no nothing. Oh, and I was just like, so jealous, you know, yeah. so jealous, man. Like it's, it was a good thing and you could have just let it carry on. It wasn't costing you guys anything and it was good for – so their reason for taking over in the end was that uh, the the youth initiative that we had collaborated with, with you guys and with Cook Island Rugby, doesn't fit our our approach to community engagement. And we just went, what? yo, <laughs> okay then. Yeah, I think you just want the money, so that's cool. You guys go ahead. That's the thing about money, eh? Like oh, it turns people, people into monsters. You know, exactly. 
and then and they kind of mentality, well, I need a cut of this. You know, everyone everyone wants a piece of the pie, you know, yeah. even though they weren't there to the silly thing was, it didn't really cost much to do apart from our flights. So all they, all the uh, tourism, um, tourism Cook Islands were pretty, pretty much going to do was to fund another, another group or cohort of coaches to come across. And we probably because we had we had started doing netball as well, wow. so we were doing rugby, and rugby league because over there they had the Edo Academy. Yeah. yeah. So we were we didn't want to um, you know encroach on what was already there, so we were supporting them. Uh, and then, of course, the girls wanted to do netball, so we started doing netball too. <laughs> so you know, like there was room to to keep expanding, and it was not costing anyone anything. So it's, it's a shame, you know. You know, there's always some things that go wrong, and you just got to walk away and hold your head high, knowing that the the stuff you did do was a lot of fun, lots of cool videos, lots of cool times. I'm just amazed how much you've managed to cram in the last from starting that. There's programs to this timeline where you've gone from Tonga to yeah. Cook Island to <laughs> Hawaii. Yeah. You know, you know oh, when I when I see a live from you and you're coming from from Russia or uh, Morocco, I'm like, like she's she's all over the she, she's worldwide right now. But I was just telling I was just telling Cam that um when I did that small contract for Auckland uh, Auckland uh, New Zealand rugby um, it was to deliver All Blacks coaching clinics in um, Argentina, South Africa, Italy, France, England. So that's actually where I was supposed to be end of last year and this year. But then COVID happened and that finished. So, yeah, you would have seen me over there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but where, what, what is it when one one door closes or something, the window opens or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. You or you kick down another door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Down yeah. Another door. <laughs> that might be your. That's <laughs> probably more appropriate for you. You know, you punch, you punch a hole. That's been the secret of your success. I've been listening to, and it's um, it's people. You invest in people, hmm. build relationships, invest in people, and the people that take advantage of you are the people that just want to hear it now, and don't yeah. think about the future. Don't think about the big bigger picture. Yeah, yeah. they're just going for whatever they can take. Yeah. <laughs> And I and I, I can't say I don't get some slight satisfaction when I see things that people take off us go, because <laughs> it's like, well, you deserve that. <laughs> well, like like you said, like because they they're taking it from you, but they're not taking it with the right. Yeah. Like you know, with the right intent. The, right intent. They yeah. they think, oh, if I if she can do manipulate it, this can do it. to get money, but it, it was never for the money. You know, yeah. if you do something for you know with ulterior motives or with the wrong motive. Yeah. It's, it's not going to work, you know. Yeah, so, absolutely. It's, people have money. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, um, what's what's next for you guys? You know what? What um, I know we've already <laughs> kind of touched wait, on wait it for thirtieth of June. But See you know, nah. what's do you want to know something that's going to happen in maybe say like ten years' time? Yes. What is the what's the big picture here? You know, what's the um. Okay, so by 10 years' time, we want to have our own um, league. Mm. Yeah. yeah. That's doable. So once you get the broadcasting rights, you run your own league, and then nobody can touch you then because you own the platform. Um, Pacifica based in? Um, Māori Pacifica, yeah. So, so, so Tonga, Samoa, you know. PNG. PNG. I want, I, oh. We really want to see PNG up. What would you call it? Uh, so they, you know, so global rapid rugby is very s similar kind of model, but 
um, I don't know what it is. I'm, without being racist, there's a, there's a difference. Like we've been talking about it all night. You know, the way that Global Rugby runs is very much a Balangi institution. Um, I just feel like it could be completely different. Have really great talent. Um, I haven't decided on a name yet because I think it'll just come to me once it's time. Like Pacifica did. Like Kalanoa came the way that it did um, with the water crashing over me and nearly taking me out to sea forever and ever. Amen. Um, so I knew from a long time ago something was going to be either Tangaroa or, you know, it ended up being Kanaloa because we were in Hawaii. That was that was the deal. Yeah, but it's all one, you know. Yeah. It's 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 our atua. It's it's God of Sea. So no matter where you go in the Pacifica community, everybody knows what it is. It doesn't make sense about your your Pacific League because that's the next step, obvious next step. Yeah. So so once you get um. Once you get like so, we had so for example, right? So I can actually say this because we had um, the the letter of approval, and I know he won't mind, but we had you know Jason Momoa. He was going to be our our main ambassador. Um, why? Because Hawaii, long hair, god of the sea. <laughs> you know, like he literally played the god of the sea. So he was. We re- we reached out to him. It was about a six month um, approach, and like had to pioneer all new ways of trying to get a hold of a celebrity because like seriously when it first came to me you know oh do you think you could get Jason Momoa and I was just cracking up going yeah yeah why not never met the guy in my life and like when do you ever just reach out and what channels with, could you get yeah. Get, get yeah so you know we had to teach ourselves all the ways to get a hold of him and you know there was lots of look, like um, obstacles because you know there's an agent and then there's a manager and there's all these things but eventually we got there um, and he was going to do a uh, spiel for us from Toronto, where he was at the time, because um, of COVID, he wasn't able to travel to Hawaii for the date that we had set for a certain launch date. Um, so he was just going to do like a series of funny um, skits with him tackling and with him learning how to fend and all this stuff, you know. So it was going to be really fun, but you know, then it didn't happen. So we just didn't happen. Um, but moving forward, if that happened, you know, we'd probably bring him back in. But you know, I don't know about a name. It would definitely just pop up. Kind of law came up, so it would come up. You know when you talked about PNG, like why PNG? Yeah, no, because you know oh, that's untapped potential. You know, because they love league. You know, they love. <laughs> it's funny when you see all the photos that they're all wearing. I saw some guy wearing a North Queensland Crusher shirt or something. I was like, Whoa! Yeah. You know, and they, you know, they even like, Australia know how much they love. You know, they love yeah. the, the Kumuls. You know, you know. And there's just so much untapped potential there. And yeah. to get, if you can expose these guys and offer them a better life or just get out there and play footy all the time, it's... No, just um, they're a su- superior race of people. Mm. It's, it's unbelievable how athletic they are. Um, like we think, you know, our Fijian brothers and sisters are amazing athletes, but from what I've experienced, what I've seen, I feel like there's so much more coming out of PNG. It's just, it's just raw. It, like, it's all instinctive. And I think, like I keep talking, that we're so robotic now. That's why Fijian rugby so um, exciting because it's still, it's not as robotic. It, it's a little bit robotic, but not as robotic as any other code, uh, um, country, sorry. You know, and then you've got PNG. So Kenya was the same. So I, I have my two, so Kenya and PNG are my two countries that I feel like if there was just, 
better coaches just to start them off and give them a bit of like, you know, um, bring them into the opportunities that they could have amazing teams. Like, seriously, Kenya, when I first saw them play, I think it was That's the right. Sevens in Wellington. I was going to say that. And now they're just like, wow. They're, they're the perfect example of a team that's evolved. You know, evolved. Evolved. You know, they came in and they were the, you know, they were the easy beats. Of the, of the, the and then when they yeah. started, when they, oh, the is this how you do it? You know, yeah. oh, okay. We, you yeah. know, oh, okay, if we do this, we follow these kind yeah. of guys. And then I think, you know, when they started beating these other teams, I'm like, okay, uh, we should so be a bit worried. That's the generational effect that I'm, so, um, you know, because in New Zealand we we play rugby since, when we were little, you know, like five, six years old, we start playing rugby. Um, and then so by the time we're adults, we're pros at it. And in Kenya, you know, the first lot of sevens players had only started playing in high school. Like they just picked it up like two, three years before. But now they've had a good 10 years, 15 years. So these players who are now in the sevens started when they were little. You know, so there's something about learning fundamental skills. It's a science um, when you're little it sticks with you and you become better players as you get older. You know, occasionally you'll have a player like Ali Williams who just turns up and becomes an all-black yeah. <laughs> after playing football, I think it was, for the first part of his life. Um, but, yeah, that, that's what it is, generational. So now that they've actually got a 10-year, 10, 10 to 15 years of, of generational rugby behind them, man, they're just going to carry on getting better and better. You know, independent Pacific League, we've got Samoa, Tonga, Fiji, PNG. Yeah. Man, that would, yeah, that would dominate the world. It, it's the best. It'd be the best rugby you you'll see on the TV screens. Exactly. That's why the broadcasting rights is the most important part. So you sell that to ESPN and you're in. And that's the next step for us. And if, the, uh, if they can suck in every single Polynesian player, Pacific Island player, into this league, you from, pretty much would. Yeah. Man, th- yeah. Th- that's game over. Yeah. I mean, the flair it would be like an NBA, like the best competition. Yeah. In the whole world. You know, when you're talking about, you know, with the league, how many potential teams would you be looking at coming from each country? Because I'm pretty sure, like, you could probably have, you know, would it be franchise-based? You know, or would you, would they be, like, would you have only one team coming out of Samoa? Because uh, there's so many people, you know, if you, like, for example, you drive down and you come from the airport and you're going home, you know, you're going into up here and that, you put, you drive past every village and they either got a rugby field or a, or a mm. volleyball court. Yeah, you know? or both. And you, yeah, or both. Or, or, or the volleyball things in the middle of the rugby field. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and you see every kid that's playing rugby, you know. And yeah. so you know that, you know, all these guys, you know there's potential there because these guys, they go from from somewhere, they go, they, they bypass New Zealand. They end up playing in the European leagues and that So. How many how many teams do you think potentially could each country bring to the table? So so you'd only go with one because you've got to look at the format of a, of a league mm-hmm. and from experience and looking at how Super Rugby's gone up and down, you know, you really don't want to go over 10, 12. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the Pacific Island Nations, if you include, like, it depends on what you see as Pacific Rim. You'd probably want a team from Japan and a team from, mm-hmm. from the States through Hawaii, right? So if you're going that broad on the Pacific skirts, then, you know, you could have one team from each country. And that's so much, you know, and now potentially, you know, if you've got a team from America, and so you're going to draw the best, or the the best, the or you've got such a big pool, you, you will yeah. see that the, how, how fast rugby is developing over in America. Like you said, generational-wise, 10 years' time, yeah. 
that pool, you're gonna, all these gonna, all these guys are gonna be competing just to play for that one team. Yeah. They'll pretty, pretty much be the US, USA, um, national team, yeah. but they, under, uh, the, the guys of, uh, of private, a privately owned private, private, private owned team. So, <laughs> yeah, like, these guys are, you know, yeah. oh, nah. the idea now is, that I can see, I yeah. mean, the idea is to take, um, to take a Pacifica league and create like what you have with baseball and, and the NFL. It's, it's wholly owned and it's ours <laughs> because only then can you, you know, um, control the narrative. And that's what it's about. You know, it's, so long as we're under the, the guys or under the, um, you know, leadership of other organizations, we have to do as we're told. And that's what's happening at the moment, you know. So you've got to get to a place where you own the narrative. So the first step was to have a professional franchise that you own and operate. So you do business your own way and you do things your own way. Um, and then um, moving forward, you you take over the league. <laughs> I, know, I know everyone's like, ah, yeah, okay. But that's, you know, like everything we put our mind to, we, we achieve. So that'll be what will happen in 10 years' time. Oh, that's exciting. Um, yeah. And if you look at the way COVID's happening or not happening, you know, um, I think the Pacific Island Nations is going to be a, a real hotbed for tourism, like just massive because it's safe and there'll be there'll be um there'll be flights coming into the islands to actually watch games. So you know, you're having games oh. in the islands. You know, not you're not having to rely on like a New Zealand or Australia as a home base. You know, that'd be so cool. Eh? Like you know, like what are you doing? Like you know, I'm just going to Sabo to watch uh, yeah watch the boys play, and probably just come back on Tuesday. You know, yeah. <laughs> but you know, yeah, because and, and and oh man, it's the the you know just seeing it. I'm just looking at it now like, far out. You know, just to be able to. To know that yeah you're going to watch uh, the Samoa team play a play a team from America or potentially Papua New Guinea and that you know yeah. and and all it's going to do as well is it's going to revitalize uh, it's going to bring Samoa whatever country together because you've got a team you know not besides your national team but you've got a team to to um to root for because those those teams you know they 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 support the Chiefs or the Blues and that but now they've got their very own tangible yeah. I mean something that they you know yeah. that belong to them so yeah and and of course it'll benefit the those nations yeah they're going to bring the game up man how about World Cup you got Tonga, Fiji Samoa in the quarterfinals oh yeah that, that's easy done <laughs> seriously we just need to stop being reliant on on the man that's not part of our own DNA that's that's what it is. It's it's, it's going to take a bit of courage, but I I'm really confident. You know, you got people like Tota Kifu and you got um Lala, and just just having them in their roles, and then Vincent and Peter, as well, very clever businessmen. I think we're just making really good inroads to actually become separate, completely separate, and then of course we were talk, touched on it before. You know, when you've got the, you know, Oceania, <laughs> chairman of Oceania Rugby. Who is also now looking at sort of restructuring? Would be looking at you know restructuring how Samoa Union works, you know. So all these things, couple you know, eighteen months time, you'll have a completely new game in the Pacifica realm, and all it's going to take is someone um, to to be able to sell that package to a, a full you know like either either sell it to a broadcaster or actually create your own broadcasting entity. So you know those are those are big jumps, but they can be done. Things things can be done. You've already shown that it's, you know that you can make it make it happen. So there's uh, there's no sh- no doubt in my mind that 
Oh, Ten years' time, we'll be wearing uh, someone, whatever. Franchise. Yeah, one of their jerseys there, you know. <laughs> yeah, like, so, a, like a pizza more super. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, that's, that's awesome. That's yeah, so, you know, exciting. I mean, people just need to get together and, 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 and lift rather than, man, that tall poppy syndrome is a killer here. It is. <laughs> totally. And is. it's so strong here in New Zealand, eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, let's get over it, eh? Let's... Let's build each other up. That's the yeah. that's the go-to, man. You got anything else you wanna? No, I'm out. <laughs> is that the longest no, interview we've ever done? Eleven twenty-five. Oh, wait, is that the time? Ten minutes short of the longest. Yo. Oh, hey, who was yeah. the longest? It was um. It was Rob. It was Rob. 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 Oh, Rob Lewis. But you know that one. <laughs> but that one was. That was a. That was a lot of um. Oh, um, because uh, we were still kind of in the... No, that was the second time here. That's oh. We went three hours for that one. That's because we were talking about Ranui. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my favourite place. You know, and when we start talking about Ranui, yeah. you know, yeah. so we're talking about that place, so... My favourite place. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, I got carried from a yeah. 21st birthday. Oh. Three blocks to a house, because I was